0: welcome to the fundamental health podcast i'm your host dr paul saladino this podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness in this podcast i will share with you everything i have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible thanks for joining me on this journey what is up, you guys? How is it going? I am in Texas, and if there's a little bit of spring in my voice and spring in my step, it's because I'm happy to be in my new home. It's a beautiful day in Austin today, and I'm looking out my window. I left the window open as I'm recording this intro so that you guys can just hear the birds. So if you hear the birds chirping, it's because I left the window open this morning. I'm real happy to be in Austin and I hope to see any of you guys that live here really soon. So this podcast is going to get released on June the 2nd. The second edition of The Carnivore Code is now available for pre order or will be available for pre order tomorrow on the 3rd. There's gonna be a new cover for this book. Look online if you wanna see my new cover for The Carnivore Code. This is super exciting for me. It means that The Carnivore Code will have much broader distribution. The official release date is August the 4th. The ebook, the print, and the audiobook will all be released on that date. So many people have asked me about the audiobook. The new book has a new cover and an index, which will make it much easier to find all those scientific terms. And as you all know, I am busily working on the cookbook, The Carnivore Code cookbook, which will be released in the winter. But for now, the super exciting news is that the second edition of my book, The Carnivore Code, published by Houghton Mifflin, much broader distribution, will be available on August the 4th. You can go to Amazon, thecarnivorecodebook.com to pre-order your copy now. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you got the first edition of my book, I would love for you to leave a review for that on the Amazon page when you can. Thank you again for all your support. This is a very exciting episode for me, you guys. I was really looking forward to doing a continuous glucose monitoring experiment in my own life. And the good folks at NutriSense, you can find them at NutriSense.io, were kind enough to provide me with a couple of, continuous glucose monitors. If you want to get a continuous glucose monitor from them, you can use the code CarnivoreMD for a little bit of a discount. You can get this direct to consumer. You don't need a doctor's prescription. They have both a two-week trial and an ongoing subscription model. You will learn so much from this piece of data collecting apparatus. I learned so much. As you'll hear in this podcast, I did a lot of experiments for you all, I did squash, which I did not love. I did lots of honey, which I found much easier on my digestion. I really don't like fiber, I found out, again, in this podcast. No surprise there if you've read my book. And I did fruit, which I didn't also love either. So uh, I have found that the carbohydrates probably do add something to my life in terms of electrolyte maintenance. As I say in this podcast, I found it much easier to maintain my electrolytes with intermittent carbohydrates, not every day. And I definitely do intermittent fasting with a time-restricted eating window that is at least 16 hours every day. So I wake up and I'm in ketosis. When I wake up in the morning, my ketones are around 0.5 millimolar. I've rechecked my labs. I'll talk about my new blood work really soon. And my fasting insulin remains low. From the readouts in this podcast that you'll see on the YouTube video, there's a lot of data that goes with this visually. You can see in the accompanying YouTube video, you will see that I do not have continuous glucose monitoring evidence of any degree of insulin resistance from adding carbohydrates into my diet, even things like honey, which really do not cause insulin resistance. They just don't. And you can see that here. So the answer to the title of this podcast, will carbohydrates give me diabetes, is no. And as you'll hear in this podcast, doesn't mean that I think everyone should be eating carbs all the time. Doesn't mean that I don't think ketogenic diets are very valuable. It just means that if you want to use carbohydrates in your diet, there are many ways to do this that are not going to irritate your gut. Or if you tolerate the fiber, okay, you can use those things. But as you'll hear me discuss at the end of the podcast, not a huge fan of fiber in general. And I think the best way for humans to get carbohydrates is without fiber or with the smallest amount of fiber possible. Thank you to my sponsors to this episode, Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X. If you see me on Instagram doing any of my lives at night or any of my stories at night, you'll see me with my swanky jaspers on from Blue Blocks. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD there to get 15% off your blue blocking glasses. I dig these. I'm a huge fan of circadian rhythm biomodulation. But if I go out at night or I'm around my house and there are lights on that are blue, it's just more soothing to have my blue blockers on. And these are really cool looking. They don't look too goofy. Some people want to wear the goofy ones and I understand that. What if I have to go to the grocery store at 8 o'clock at night? My blue blockers are going on and they look really cool. Cool. And I get lots of comments on them. People really like my glasses. They're super swanky. So if you want to look like Carnivore MD, get the Jasper. They have both clear lenses and the super dark orange lenses, which are going to block all of the green and blue wavelengths. The guys have blue blocks have gone to great lengths to ensure that these are blocking the wavelengths that we're worried about. And done some amazing experiments. I've talked to them in detail. They're pretty solid on the science. These are my favorite blue blocking glasses. They're pretty darn high quality. So check them out. Blu BLOX, Carnivore md Gets you 15% off. Tell them I sent you. Appreciate these guys a ton. Other sponsors for this podcast, as always, my friends, the people at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. You can use Carnivore MD for 10% off your first order. If you don't know about White Oak Pastures, you are in for a treat. These are a sixth generation, 120 year family farm. 150 years? 150 year family farm. Last 20 years. They've been doing regenerative agriculture, which is the answer for soil quality, for rainwater, retention in the soil, for prevention of erosion, and recreates ecosystems. The meat speaks for itself. Go to whiteoakpastures.com, get a ribeye, get a New York. I like stew meat. Get some tenderloin tips and tails. They also have lots of organ meats, as you all know. Nose Tail is my so passionate thing I am about Get some of that stuff. You will not be disappointed. They are amazing. And they're in Bluffton, Georgia, which I'm a little closer to now in Austin. We are going to be doing White Oak Cella, I believe in October. I'll keep you guys posted really soon. It's gonna be the first weekend in October. I can't wait to see you all there. It's a celebration of regenerative agriculture. It's gonna be a blast. Horseback riding, axe throwing, barbecuing, country dancing. You can see Carnivore MD steak dance in person. And uh, steak dance with me or make fun of me from the sidelines, whatever you prefer. But it's going to be a real good time. White Oak has been doing a absolutely heroic job in these crazy coronavirus times to really help us all have access to good meat. And it is really thrust to the forefront of our consciousness, the importance of this truly traditional type of agriculture, truly ecosystem re, uh, recapitulating, ecosystem re um, what what am I looking for here? It it absolutely mirrors ecosystems in the way they're supposed to be happening on the face of the planet. <laughs> Design. These are not big slaughterhouses. These are small operations. These are the future for us. They support the soil, they support the animals, support them, and your health will be better for it. Believe me, you will appreciate White Oak Pastures. Carnivore MD gets you 10% off your first order. I love them all dearly. My friends and ancestral supplements are always to be Thanked. I'm always grateful to those men and women of the fine establishment, ancestralsupplements.com. They are putting back in what the modern world has left out. I couldn't be happier to be in Texas a little closer to my brothers and sisters at ancestral supplements right now, but you all know they are making grass-fed, grass-finished supplements conveniently encapsulated into gelatin capsules. Organ meats are such a huge part of what has been left out of our diets in the modern world, whether it's liver or spleen or pancreas or gallbladder or thymus for immune support or lung or collagen for bone and wound healing support. You can get all of these in capsules. Not all of us can eat liver. Not all of us can eat spleen. (laughs) Certainly not all of us want to or can eat testicle, but these are all provided by the good folks at Ancestral Supplements in such convenient capsules and they really do enhance our health. My family takes these, I send them to my sister, my mom and my dad, and it makes me smile in a special way when my sister, who I talked to just yesterday, said that she was feeding them to my niece and my nephew. It just makes me feel good knowing that they are getting no seteal nutrition and that, that is going to benefit them for the rest of their life. Pretty hard to get a two-year-old to eat liver. Well, at least my my sister isn't excited about it just yet, so the pills make it way easier. My nephew is six months old, he's not ready to eat liver, but the pills, we just open them the powder on their food, works so great for them. My mom and my dad, they're not going to eat liver, but they're eating the pills and I I know that it's benefiting them too. So it makes me feel really good and I appreciate the folks at Ancestral for making these amazing products from New Zealand. So check them out, AncestralSupplements.com. You can use the code SALADINOMD at their website for 10% off your order and send them an email, let them know where you heard about it, let them know how much you appreciate them, let them know how you're doing, and let them know how much you really um, appreciate the work they're doing to spread and make the message of no tail eating so much more convenient for all of us. One last thing before I move on to the podcast, I just want to mention that I am deeply um, moved and saddened by the events uh, throughout the country right now with the riots and um, can only really um, try to make sense of all this. Uh, Clearly, the racial prejudice that exists in this country uh, is still um, very, very sad. And I hope that this will be another wake up call to all of us that regardless of the color of our skin or where we come from, we are all brothers and sisters on this planet. And all humans deserve to live. Um, All humans have a valuable life. And my goodness, I hope we can find some um, takeaways in these very crazy trying times. Between this and coronavirus, I think that we're all just kind of ready for 2020 to move into a new phase. But I, I can only hope that in the midst of these crazy times, the um, some good will come out of this awareness. And obviously, I'm very um, saddened for anyone whose family has been negatively affected by us, certainly um, the gentleman who died in um, Minneapolis. So... With that in mind, um, we move forward, and I hope this podcast will be very valuable to all of you. If you have questions, reach out to me about this one. I know it's going to raise a lot of eyebrows. It's different than what I've done in the past. Um, I believe there are many ways, and we are chasing results, not dogma. And uh, I still believe that this is a carnivore diet. This is an animal-based diet. That I continue to do and using carbs sometimes really uses uh, allows for different gear at different levers. So, hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Listen afterward for what is going on with me. All right, we are live. Kara, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: You're welcome. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, we are going to talk about some really cool stuff. I have been talking about my exciting CGM, my continuous glucose monitor, for weeks now on my social media, and I so appreciate you being here to give me your perspective on it, and um, as a dietitian who's working with NutriSense, the company that was kind enough to provide me with my CGM, you've seen probably thousands of these at this point, right?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> okay. Which lots, is amazing. And lots
1: of data points, yeah. <laughs> lots
0: of data points. So you have seen way more CGMs than probably most physicians in the country have seen at this point. And we're gonna go through all kinds yes. of examples uh, of different people eating different diets. We're gonna look at my diet in detail. I did a bunch of experiments. So everyone listening to this, I love you guys. And I did this for you. I ate things <laughs> that I don't usually eat. I ate fruit, I ate squash. And I ate honey. I actually really like honey. And we're going to get into that in tons of detail on this podcast. But I do not like fruit and I do not like squash. But I did it for you, listeners, to show you. I was actually texting with Kara last night and I said, I don't want to eat this squash. And she said, do it for science. So I did it. And we have a CGM of me eating squash and we'll get into it later. But let's just start at square one. When I post on my stories on Instagram and say, I'm wearing a CGM, I inevitably get six people saying, what's a CGM? So Kara, what's a CGM?
1: Yes, great question. So as you said, it's a continuous glucose monitor and it's exactly what it sounds like. So it's a little disc that you put on the back of your arm. You do it at home. You don't need anybody to put it on for you. And I like to describe it as an easy button because you literally like push it in like a button. And then that monitor is there for two full weeks. So you can see your glucose 24-7 for that two full weeks. And it's actually measuring the glucose in your interstitial fluid, as opposed to if you're doing a finger prick at home or go to a doctor's office, that's measuring blood values. So it's this really flexible microfilament that's measuring just below the surface of the skin. So I don't know about you, but it's really painless, super easy. I never notice that it's there. And so for those two full weeks, you get to see your data at 24 seven. So there's very few things that we actually get to see 24 seven in real life. And so to get the, the data onto your phone, you just scan it with your NFC on your phone, then you can see your data 24 seven. It's just that easy.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm still wearing one. So this is the second one that I've worn. Anybody watching the YouTube cool. can see it here. Um, and uh it is not painful at all to put on. It was super easy. I did mess one of them up because I'm a knucklehead, but um I'm two for three in terms of putting them on. They're pretty straightforward. And at the end of this podcast, I'm gonna scan it so people on YouTube can see. I just ate breakfast before this podcast. The breakfast did include honey. So I will show you guys watching on YouTube, or if you're listening to this on a podcast and you want to see what this looks like and what my data looks like in real time over the course of the next hour, hour and a half that we've been talking. I'll do that at the end of the podcast. People can see how it works. But like Kara said, it's pretty straightforward. You just put your phone up to it and you can see it. And I love the point that you're making there that it lets you see your blood glucose data in real time because one of the things that I've noticed is that when I'm eating foods like honey, and we'll get into this, there's a spike. It's not a big spike, but it goes up and it comes down really quickly. And if I were just doing finger stick glucoses, I would miss that. The other thing we're Mm -hmm. gonna get into today is the notion of glycemic variability. And there is simply no way to really visually, objectively assay your glycemic variability by doing finger stick glucose. You simply can't stick your finger that much. This is the difference between... uh, These are not even the same sport, you guys. If you're listening to this and you're doing finger stick glucose, this is like a completely different sport. This is a completely game-changing thing in terms of getting so many more valuable metrics in terms of... Insulin sensitivity, glycemic variability, and as we'll talk about, prediction for so many risk conditions or metabolic this unhealth uh, states. And I said in the introduction, I'll say it again in this podcast this is not a sponsored podcast. NutriSense isn't paying me to do this. I wanted to do this uh, to show you all what mine looks like eating carbs. Kara was kind enough to come on. And this is not me plugging NutriSense. This is me just saying CGM is amazing and you should all be checking it out in your own lives. And if you want one, NutriSense is doing it direct to consumer, as are um, a couple of other companies. But we'll start with that. So, why is this so important? We are in the middle of coronavirus, and let's just start with that. Kara, what do we know yeah. about what do we know about glycemic variability and coronavirus outcomes? Anyone who's listened to my podcast knows that I've talked about this before.
1: Yeah, I love that you've made this message clear from the very beginning because it's so important. That it's always important, of course, to be metabolically healthy, but now is especially important for people to get things under control because this link is super strong and it's no longer being debated. It's so obvious the link between metabolic health and your risk for getting coronavirus and your risk for poor outcomes. So, there was the study that came out in May that was extremely interesting. Um, I know that you've read it and many other people have been talking about it, but it showed this really clearly. So it looked at over 7,000 people in China and those with type 2 diabetes were more likely to get coronavirus, they required more medical interventions, they had more organ injury and more mortality. So at the end of the day, you're more likely to get sick and you're more likely to have worse outcomes if you have diabetes. And they also showed that even those who had did not have diabetes, just having high glucose levels is an independent risk factor for mortality and treatments. So for those who had tightly controlled glucose values, what they considered tightly controlled was 70 to 180, which is even, you know, it's a good range for the general population, but we can get into markers more in a bit. But those people had a mortality of about 1% when those who had glucose values reaching over 180, which a lot of Americans do, their mortality jumped up to 11%. So Yes, there's the image that I included in the study. It's very clear. Um, there's really no debating this at this point.
0: So I'm screen sharing now. For those of you mm-hmm. listening, you can find all this on YouTube. <clears throat> I've talked about this study before. It's in Cell Metabolism, about as prestigious a journal as you get. The graphic here shows it. <laughs> it's just kind of there saying, you know, if your blood glucose is well controlled, you had a much uh, lower risk of severe covid Then if your blood glucose was poorly controlled, and they even say it here in the title: Association of blood glucose control. What we're talking about here is glycemic variability and apex glucose readings. So, this is the type of thing that many people have and don't even know about. So, here's the study, you guys. I will link to it in the show notes. We're gonna talk about many things like this. The other thing I want to note here, and this is so interesting as well, I don't know if you saw this, Kara. Um, So my friend, Mike Mutzel, posted this on Instagram. So there was was a lot of talk about this gentleman's case at the bearded underscore nurse, who, um, before he got coronavirus, was pretty jacked. You know, he's got this great beard. He's a bearded nurse. And he's a big-looking guy. And the media is using his case uh, to say, quote, the virus doesn't discriminate. But... (laughs) When we look at his Instagram, and this is this is not to invalidate his suffering. It's I'm glad that he's getting healthy. I am um, very sad for his suffering with all of this. But for the media to claim that this is a quote healthy man really illustrates exactly what we're talking about here. So if you look at the rest of his Instagram, you can see that before he got coronavirus, he was clearly a fan of Coke. He said, Update, I passed my modified barium swallow test today. Now I can eat what I want pizza and drink what I want, Coke Zero. (laughs) Okay, so this is look, it's America, it's a free country. Everyone has a right to eat and drink what they want. But for the media to miss the fact that this gentleman was eating pizza and drinking Coke and Coke Zero, this is a, a real Coke, not even a Coke Zero in this photo, is a little bit misleading when they're saying that he's a healthy individual. The next thing, after 57 days in the hospital, not able to see any visitors, battling COVID-induced pneumonia, I'm finally going home, had to make a stop at McDonald's. So here he is making a stop at McDonald's, getting a flurry. Yeah. And then here's a guy, same guy eating pizza rolls, snacks for gains, hashtag fatty, hashtag pizza rolls, hashtag clean eating. Not sure why. Because it counts
1: in your macros, is that what that means?
0: Maybe it's, I don't understand. So, but uh, you know, when I saw this, I thought, isn't this a great lead-in to our discussion of glycemic variability mm -hmm. and our discussion of a CGM to really pop the hood, to really look under the, 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 into the inner workings of our metabolism in a way that you can't see because that guy on the surface looks healthy overtly. He's muscular. He's reasonably young. He doesn't have diagnosed diabetes. But I think that you and I would agree that if we had put a CGM on that guy, we might not have seen very good glycemic variability. And that might have predicted his response to coronavirus in a way that he might not have anticipated. Now, whether or not that would have changed his behavior is questionable. We certainly hope it would have. But this is the wake-up call that if we wear a CGM, if I wear a CGM, if you wear a CGM, if anyone listening to this wears a CGM and sees a higher glycemic variability than they're expecting, say, oh, maybe I need to change this because this is not a good indication of metabolic health. But I just thought that was such a striking example.
1: Yes, absolutely. completely agree. And what you said about, you know, everyone has the right to choose whatever foods they want to eat. I totally agree but also everyone has the right to know that that's how that's going to harm them. And it wasn't the mainstream message. Well, it's still not the mainstream message that this is going to increase your risk. So that's why I think it's so important to say this message too, because people need to know the trade-offs they're making when they eat these foods or drink the Coke and you know, if you're not gathering the data with a CGM and not hearing this message, you really might not know. Everyone knows it's not good for you, but he's like, well, if I'm working out, I'm a normal weight. He might think he's totally healthy. He probably does believe that. But I 100 percent guarantee you I would not see that in his data, because it's just not how it works. I've seen enough data now, that's just not how it works.
0: We should we should reach out to him. It just makes me think right now on the podcast. I'm gonna reach out to him. And we'll see if we can get him a NutriSense CGM. And maybe we can never hurts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll see if he'll wear it. So I'll let you guys know who listen to this podcast, if he responds, if he wants to wear a CGM, I'll encourage him to just keep eating the way he's eating now, but it'll be interesting to see what his glycemic variability is. And uh, again, I'm not trying to make uh, a bad example of him, but I just want to illustrate that that's not a quote healthy individual and that the media's portrayal that the virus can attack anyone or harm anyone. Is a little misleading in that case. And I think it illustrates the pattern that we're seeing over and over. Now, two or three weeks ago on the podcast, I had a seam alhotra. To this same point, a seam and I agreed you can't out exercise a bad diet. You just can't. And this is what a CGM will unequivocally Mm -hmm. tell you you can't eat pizza rolls and Coke. You might be able to have a six pack or muscles like that guy but your glycemic variability, your postprandial glucose levels, they're going to tell you what's going on. You're not going to be able to hide from a CGM, but you can hide from the mirror and you can convince yourself that you're healthy. So fantastic illustration here. Another point to bring up is the study that I've now highlighted multiple times that the Kara also wanted to highlight, which is that 88% of Americans are not metabolically healthy. This is such a crazy study. You've seen the same one, huh? Yes.
1: Yeah. It's, I like to point this out to people because it's like we see we walk around and you see that two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese. So you're like, okay, there might be some sort of a problem going on. But it's, it's also the people who look good like that guy. I'm sure that he would not qualify with that 12% that, you know, check all the boxes for metabolic health. And that's what really matters. And there's also some people who are a little bit overweight and they are metabolically healthy. So weight doesn't always tell you everything. And it's extremely important to know what's happening on the inside because that's going to predict your actual health outcomes. And that's what we need to know. So you need to be measuring this information. And, you know, CGM is one of the tools. We want to look at other biomarkers as well, but it's an important tool that tells you a lot about what's happening inside and predicts, you know, any sort of metabolic lifestyle related condition.
0: I love that you highlight that because that came up with a seam as well. And I had someone email me and say, "I'm 350 pounds. I'm scared of coronavirus. What should I do?" And I said, "Change your diet today. You don't have to lose. Yeah. You don't don't have to lose 100 pounds. Yes. And you can't lose 100 pounds in the next three weeks. But you can affect your metabolic health in the next two weeks. And you can see that with a CGM. And I want people to understand that. Yes, that individual. I want them to lose weight. I want them to lose." 200 pounds. They probably need to lose 175 pounds, and that's going to take a long time. But within two weeks, we could affect their metabolic health in a positive way, improve many of the markers, especially the markers of insulin sensitivity, just by changing their diet. And you would see that with a CGM. But I also, it goes both ways, right? That
1: mm-hmm. that
0: health looking like you're healthy, looking like the bearded nurse doesn't mean you're healthy. But also, if you're obese, if you have weight to lose. You don't have to lose every single pound and get a six pack to improve your risk of not suffering or to improve the prognosis were you to get coronavirus or any infection. So really what this boils down to is change your diet, change your lifestyle. Don't believe that you can out-exercise a bad diet and don't imagine that you have to lose every pound of fat and have a six pack to be metabolically healthy, quote unquote, or at least metabolically improved.
1: 100%. I agree with everything you're saying. And I think one of the really useful aspects of something like a CGM is that it is giving you that real-time feedback all the time. So if you're somebody who's been slowly gaining weight all of your life and now you're 300 pounds, that's very discouraging and it can be confusing on how to make changes. And so if you're seeing a real time, okay, I'm getting concrete data, like what I just ate is causing my glucose values to skyrocket, then it's like, okay, I'm going to adjust that one meal. And it feels like you're making real progress, because then you can see the next day, I didn't eat that, I changed it to something else. And I didn't have that glycemic response. So you can get that encouragement in real time that actually makes behavior change stick. And that's a huge problem with you know dietitians, with medical care professionals of any sort is you have all the information you need in the world. And if people aren't going to do anything with it, it's not useful. And so part of this, that real-time data is helping to drive behavior change that people need to get their diet under control and take care of their health. So that's extremely important aspect of it.
0: Real-time data is everything. I everything, think, yeah. <laughs> you, everyone listening to this knows this intuitively, whether we know it consciously or not is another question. But if you step on a tack and it hurts, you're, you're going to put shoes on. And if you eat something and you can see a huge blood glucose spike that lasts for a long time, you might change your behavior. In medicine, we call hypertension the secret killer or the silent killer because hypertension doesn't hurt. High blood pressure doesn't hurt. Heart attacks don't hurt until Mm -hmm. they happen. And this is what is so cool about the CGM. It opens the hood. It opens the window to the the inner workings of your body. There are so few things that can do this. And you're so right. It's such a powerful thing for behavioral change. And I hope we get more of these real-time data points yeah, for people. Right. I don't know that I mean, I think a CGM is a really great start. A fasting insulin or at least a, a 24-hour insulin would also be really cool, but it's essentially showing you the same data. But if you could also see inflammation in your body, I think that would be the coolest thing to get a a real-time HSCRP uh, marker or measurement in your body or a real-time measurement of clotting factors or fibrinogen or something else. Mm-hmm. That would also change behavior in a major way. Oh, you just smoked a Thank cigarette you. and your HSCRP yeah. went through the roof. Hmm. Maybe not. You just drank a Coke and your inflammation markers. Anyway, different yeah. story. My
1: dream is like one device that continuously measures glucose, uh, cortisol, HSCRP, uh, insulin for sure. Maybe triglycerides that'd probably be pretty useful. You can measure that at all times and just compare the data I think we could do anything. I think we would be a totally different country.
0: I think Elon we'll Musk should I think yeah. Elon Musk should pause Neuralink and build that. Because that yeah. <laughs> that would probably improve more lives and save more suffering long term. Neuralink sounds like it's going to do some pretty cool things to have neurologic in, to people who have neurologic injury, but that device alone would probably save our healthcare system trillions of dollars a year. So Yeah. Going back to that 88% of Americans are metabolically unwell, I want to highlight the criteria for that. Again, I've posted that study in the past. I can link to it in the show notes here. But we're talking about basically the risk factors for syndrome X or metabolic syndrome, which are high blood pressure, which are increased waist circumference, which are low HDL, high triglycerides, and impaired fasting glucose. So Mm -hmm. if you don't meet one of those five criteria – those are the people who are in that 88% that we are considering to be metabolically unhealthy. So what that study is saying is that 88% of people in the United States either have high blood pressure, high triglycerides, low HDL, impaired fasting glucose, or an increased waist circumference, one of those five. You have to have multiple of those criteria to be qualified for metabolic syndrome, quote unquote, which at the last estimate, I believe 25 to 30% of people meet the criteria for full metabolic syndrome. What we know about humans is if you have one of those criteria, you're probably metabolically unhealthy. And I think our guidelines are much too lax in terms of telling people, hey, you have metabolic syndrome. In terms of the glucose values, that's what we're talking about today. So let's do a little deeper dive because Mm -hmm. let's set the stage here for when we start looking at the CGM, because this podcast is going to be very visually intensive as we get to the end of it. We're going to show lots of CGM readings so you can all see this on YouTube. I'll try to describe it as best I can with words for those listening on a podcast. But what do we think of as ideal? What do we think of as normal? And what do we think of as abnormal in terms of these glucose values to give us a framework for how to interpret these continuous glucose Mm -hmm. monitor readings?
1: Yep. So, we could start with fasting glucose. Um, so if you go to a doctor and you're not wearing a CGM, really the only glucose metrics you might get are fasting glucose value and a hemoglobin A1C. So we could start with fasting glucose. What's considered normal by you know, WHO and ADA is a fasting glucose less than 100. And prediabetes is, you know, above 100 to 126. And actually, what's interesting is it used to be the threshold of normal was 110, not that long ago, and they recently lowered it to 100. But I'm hoping that they keep that trend and they lower it down to 90. Because when we're talking, and I think that will happen eventually, you know, they're always a little slow to make these changes. But if we're looking at optimal, there is a huge body of research that shows a fasting glucose value above 90 is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, insulin resistance, all of these chronic metabolic conditions. Um, the data is pretty clear, you know, it's not just one study showing an association, there are lots of these. And you know, they're controlling for BMI, and they're controlling for triglycerides and age and it's seems to be a very strong predictor, particularly for cardiovascular death, like you're showing, but it's also for all these other risk factors related to metabolic health. So I encourage our customers who are using our product to aim for fasting glucose below 90, but in the seventies and eighties is really more the sweet spot. So, yeah. yeah. Um, the next thing that you might get from a physician's office is a hemoglobin A1C, that's a relatively popular test. It's like my least favorite lab value ever. So, you know, I personally do not like an A1C value. I find it only to be useful for tracking your own progress. So, you know, maybe you are diabetic and you start with a hemoglobin A1C of 14%, which happens. And then, you know, you make some lifestyle changes and it gets down to 10%. That's valuable because you can see your own progress. But other than that, it falls really, really short as a useful metric for an average person, especially taken in isolation. So just the nature of what is an A1C test, this is telling you your average glucose over 90 days. So an average inherently doesn't tell you anything about highs or lows, which as we'll get into the highs and lows and the variability and your postprandial responses are actually leading indicators for health. So it's completely missing that. You could be swinging up and down all day, but have a good average, and you would think that you're in a good place. And you're like, oh, my glucose is amazing. You know, my fasting glucose is low and my average is low, but really you could be spiking to 200 all day and you would have no idea. So it misses that variability, which is really unfortunate, but it's also just a generally unreliable test. So it's making the assumption that your red blood cell lives for 90 days, because that's what it's measuring and not everybody's red blood cells live for 90 days. Um, If you have anemia, it does not then account for that. It's unreliable. And that is an extremely popular or popular common occurrence is anemia. And even just high glucose levels themselves lower your red blood cell life. So if you have high glucose levels, you're going to get a false value on your A1C. And blood loss, smoking, all of these things alter red blood cell life. So It makes it to have a very low sensitivity in the end. There's various studies I've looked into this, but sensitivity for an A1C is around 50%. So it's only identifying positives for diabetes or abnormal glucose levels 50% of the time. So that's why I find it a very useless marker. Um, You want to track it over time for yourself, like sure, but I don't put much weight on it at all so that's my my spiel about a1
0: c <laughs> i couldn't agree with you more in my book, The Carnivore Code, I took a stance against hemoglobin A1 C, yeah. and we can dig into that a little bit because it's quite an interesting thing. as you say, hemoglobin A1 C is measuring the proportion of glycation that's happening on your hemoglobin molecules, and this is the attachment of a sugar uh, to the hemoglobin, and as you 're saying, it is predicated on the notion that the average red blood cell lives ninety days. Mm-hmm as you say, if you have hyperglycemia, your red blood cells live a shorter amount of time, which is going to spuriously lower your hemoglobin A1c. There's also the flip side, which is that there's some suggestion or at least hypothesis that on ketogenic diets, your red blood cells might live longer than 90 days, which could spuriously elevate your hemoglobin A1c. And I want to talk about this for a moment. This is an aside. So Working with people on carnivore diets, what I generally see is that the hemoglobin A1c is a very poor proxy for average blood sugar. And we're going to get into some continuous glucose monitor readings of a strict carnivore diet. We're going to get into a a CGM in a little bit that shows perhaps one of the um, side effects of long term keto, which is impaired or at least elevated fasting glucose. But most people I work with who are doing strict carnivore diets for months at a time, more than three months, I will see a hemoglobin A1C, which overestimates the average blood glucose based on what I know of what their CGM would probably look like. And based on what I know of CGMs that I have actually seen to correlate it with. And it's probably because the red blood cells are living longer than 90 days in that situation. Now, there is a little bit of, it gets a little bit in the weeds. I'll I'll show an interesting website that people can go to if they're interested in this. If you are listening to this and you are on a ketogenic diet and you really want to understand the A1C stuff, I would recommend this post, which we will link to in the show notes. Basically, um, this is a gentleman who posted on BJJ Caveman about his elevated hemoglobin A1C. And the take-home is this. You can use another value called the fructosamine to correlate with your hemoglobin A1C. Fructosamine measures two to three weeks of average blood glucose by looking at how many glucose molecules, how many sugar molecules are bound to proteins in the blood, primarily albumin. albumin. So you can look at your fructosamine. You can use this formula, which is somewhat complex to uh, triangulate this data by looking at your estimated average blood glucose based on your fructosamine. And you can look at the predicted A1C based on your fructosamine. If those are different, you probably have something going on and, uh, a differential red blood cell lifespan than you're expecting. The long and the short of this, without going into too much of a rabbit hole, is that you can calculate the red blood cell survival if you can also have the reticulocyte percent drawn in your blood work and the reticulocyte lifespan, which you can calculate based on your hematocrit. Again, this is kind of granular. It's just for the super geeky nerds out there who want to understand how to calculate red blood cell survival and Modify their A1C for this on a long term ketogenic diet. Here is a graphic of the hematocrit correlated with the reticulocyte survival in days and a maturation correction. And then you can do uh, a full equation for the actual hemoglobin A1C or the actual red blood cell life. So this is just to say that the hemoglobin A1C is f- pretty inaccurate. Don't get worried about it if it's elevated on a ketogenic diet, but work with somebody who knows what they're doing, or better yet, put a CGM on and prove it to yourself, you can see, and we'll go through all this at the end of the podcast, the CGM will tell you what your average blood sugar is over the time you're wearing it. And you can correlate that with your hemoglobin A1c um, and get a more accurate sense. But I agree with you completely. A1c misses all of the variability, as well as having this flaw with the red blood cell life, which is going to change for the better or for the worse, depending on how you're eating. And I think that for most of us, we should not rely on A1C. It's such a bad such a bad proxy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hope it goes away at some point in time. Even my own customers who've been wearing a CGM for three, four months, and we know their average glucose very well, uh, they'll get an A1C from a lab and they'll bring it to me and it's high or low. And they're concerned. I'm like, well, we can see your actual data. Like, We don't have to look at that. I think people understand what the A1C comes from. And so it's very important to make that clear. They just think it's a marker of your risk for diabetes, which technically it's supposed to be, but it's really not. So yeah, don't pay that much attention to it, to be honest. If it's 15%, then yeah, that's like a red flag. Like that's way, way higher than normal. So it's telling you something, but for most people, it's not telling us that much.
0: And it can be, it's very misleading and it can be both misleading uh, it can make, it can be spuriously low, it can be spuriously high, and we need to know the variability. Variability, mm-hmm. glucose, uh, you know, glucose stability, I think is king, is the take home from this podcast. And the best way to really the only way to know that is with, um, with a CGM, even for a short amount of time, you can get an enormous amount of data. And I love what you said about fasting glucose. I do think fasting glucose should be less than 100, it should probably be less than 90. We will get into this situation of a fasting glucose level that's Creeping up into the 90s and low 100s, and people who are ketogenic and carnivore for long amounts of time. uh, Later in the podcast, we'll address Mm -hmm. that. I'm I'm not sure that's a good thing, uh, though it's debatable, and we don't fully understand that. But we will talk about this quote: "Physiologic insulin resistance, uh, glucose sparing physiology." If people want to hear more about that, they can listen to the podcast I did with. Cyrus and Robbie, who are two fruitarians. That's a previous one in the library of the Fundamental Health Podcast. So optimal fasting glucose, in my opinion, I agree with you, between 75 and 90. But again, we wake up in the morning with the CGM. So what I do is I wake up in the morning with the CGM, I scan it, it gives me everything overnight. And then I start my day and that's where the real data gathering happens. And I can say, all right, number one, what was my fasting glucose? how does my glucose change before I eat breakfast? And then for me, I'm going to go eat breakfast and I'll see the glycemic response to that breakfast. So let's talk about a glycemic response because this is really the most important thing or perhaps the best predictor. So once someone actually goes to eat, they've got that fasting glucose level, someone goes to eat. This is where people get confused. You have a postprandial glucose, meaning how the glucose behaves after you eat. What should that look like?
1: Yeah, exactly. So this is where really the insights come from. So what we need to be paying attention to is the postprandial reactions. So you really can't get this unless you're wearing a CGM. You can sort of hack it, like you said, with a glucometer at home, which a lot of people try to do. But I even made this mistake just as a aside real quick. I, before I started wearing CGMs, I would check my you know, finger stick all the time. And I was testing different foods and I tested pineapple and checked it before I ate, 30 minutes after I ate, and an hour after I ate, and it was like all 80. So I was like, wow, I barely moved it all from pineapple. And then the first time I tried a CGM, I tried it. Pineapple is like the highest spike I've ever had. And I went to like 180, but came back down really fast, which is good that that's a small reaction, but I totally missed that spike with the glucometer because sometimes it happens fast. And so you can't guess an estimated you know, area under the curve. You can't guess what you're peaking at if you're using just a glucometer at home. Um, Okay, so postprandial, we want to pay attention to both your peak glucose, but we particularly want to pay attention to glycemic variability or what that actual spike looks like. So what does your response to a meal look like? For somebody, it might be, you know, really high and that has its own inherent risk factors. We do want to look at peak glucose value, even though ADA and WHO they don't recognize peak glucose value, your highest number as being a marker of importance. If you're doing like an oral glucose tolerance test in a lab, they only look at that two hour mark as a risk for diabetes or insulin resistance, which I think again is is just absolutely insane. And I hope that changes one day, but they're looking at two hours after you consume a 75 gram glucose load, that they want your glucose to be at 140 or lower. And two hours after you eat, if it's still at 140, I am personally very concerned.
0: (laughs) That's insane.
1: (laughs) It's insane. If if
0: somebody were to eat 75 grams of glucose in any form, and we can talk about the form of carbohydrates, and your blood sugar were at 135 afterward, they would call it normal or 130.
1: Yeah. And that's- Two hours afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Two
0: hours. Yes, yes. And-
1: Which is a long time.
0: And that's a long time. Even one hour afterward, I wouldn't want to see my blood sugar that high, but they would miss that. And that's yeah. clear metabolic derangement. But yeah, go ahead. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so that's what they're looking at in, in a traditional medical setting. And I completely don't agree with that. We want to look at a peak glucose value whenever it occurs. Um, so optimally, based off of the research that's available, and it's not cut and clear because there's not a ton of research that's, you know, measuring continuous glucose data on non-diabetics, unfortunately. There's some, but there's not a lot but we want to avoid repeated exposure to glucose values above 140. 140 is that threshold that we set, but it's about repetition. So there, is, there are some studies that show the importance of a peak glucose value less than 140 because that's a threshold where you start to see reduced insulin sensitivity, increased risk for diabetes, impaired beta cell function, cardiovascular disease. Above 160, you see an even higher risk. And that's not just at the two-hour mark. That's just all the time. So in these studies that are measuring continuous glucose values in non-diabetics and normal weight, normal health metrics, so they're making sure that they have normal, you know, lipid panel, normal BMI, not smoking, and they stay below 140 98% of the time. So that gives you a good indication of where we want to be at and not just at the two-hour mark, you know, most of the time. And for those people who do go above 140, it's usually for five minutes or less. So it's short. And then we'll get into that with glycemic variability. So if you are spiking a little bit above, that's not necessarily detrimental, but we don't want to see it up there for a long period of time. Definitely not. And so that's something important to keep in mind because I do hear floating around the nutrition world and especially the keto world that you never want to see glucose value above 120. And I do want to clear the air a little bit. And we'll get to that when we see your data. Sometimes you did have some spikes within normal ranges. Um, There's no convincing evidence that we never need our glucose to be above 120 and completely not convinced that that's what we need to aim for. And I I think that's going to give more harm than good by telling people that because then they will never eat carbohydrates and we can get on that train in a little bit. But uh, I there's like one study that showed a slight increased risk when glucose values went above 120 and and I'm completely not convinced that means we then need to encourage that for everyone. So that's just like a little side tangent. But what we really want to be paying attention to is what that response looks like. So glycemic variability postprandial spike is good, but this is the highest predictor of cardiovascular disease risk, particularly. Um, you know, There's research that shows a high glycemic variability. It creates more oxidative stress than just sustained high glucose levels. So, so swings in glucose in a big area into the curve as an independent risk factor for vascular damage, insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, all sorts of problems that we want to avoid, of course. So what does this look like? Um, You know, we want to see if you are getting above 140, if you're hitting 150, we wanted to see for that short amount of time. And we want that area under the curve of your glucose response to be small. And so something I see some, you know, with people, people ask me what causes insulin resistance, and it's multifactorial. But one big thing is the combination of a refined carbohydrate plus a refined oil, right, which is like every snack food, every junk food that's ever existed is basically that combination. Guess what? It's also addicting. But this food, when you have this combination of fat and refined oil, that creates a huge area under the curve there, your glucose response continues to be you just, you have a long area under the curve because the fat slows down digestion, but you have this refined carbohydrate in your system. So your body's processing this for a long time. And that's the same thing with like a huge meal of refined carbohydrates. So these sort of meals lead to a massive area under the curve because your body's processing this huge load of carbohydrates and glucose. And that's stressful on the cell that's stressful on the mitochondria. Um, we kind of go into that but we'll we'll show pictures as well for those who are watching this but one thing that's important to note is like we said in the beginning you can't measure insulin 24 7 which is unfortunately just a technology that doesn't exist at this point fingers crossed that that comes but your glycemic response to a meal is the closest proxy we have to measure your insulin postprandially unless you're in a lab and it's being measured that way. So that area under the curve tells you how much insulin was needed to bring that glucose down. Um, Just kind of a nuance with insulin. A lot of people misunderstand this. We have fairly educated customers and they still always really get confused on what insulin is and what we want. There's this notion that you don't want any insulin and that is also wrong. No insulin means you're a type 1 diabetic and before we came up with exogenous insulin injections, type 1 diabetics live till like the age of 15. So trust me, you don't want to make no insulin but we don't want to produce too much insulin because of course that can lead to insulin resistance but we have a fasting insulin, just like we have a fasting glucose. And so some insulin is always present In an average person, about 50% of our insulin is in that fasting baseline basal state. And then the other 50% is for postprandial insulin responses. And that postprandial insulin response is a biphasic response. So we have that initial burst of insulin that happens when you eat a, any food. So because insulin is an anabolic hormone what that means is when you eat you release a little bit of insulin right away when you eat and that helps process that food so anabolic hormone means that it's a growth hormone so it stimulates growth pathways so this also means you know muscle growth cell repair building functions but it also means you know creating glycogen if our energy stores are high or creating fat stores so we need insulin, but we don't want too much. So you have that first phase, and then the second biphasic response is based off of the level of hyperglycemia. So the longer you're having that area under the curve, that indicates that you're requiring more insulin to deal with that glucose load, to deal with that glycemic variability. So we want to keep that area under the curve small because that is an indication that we're pumping out more insulin than we really need. So that serves as a proxy until the technology is available for us to measure insulin 24-7, which, you know, I trust we'll have in one day.
0: But as you're saying, the glycemic response, the glycemic variability, and I want to show people who are watching what the area under the curve actually means that we're referring to, that's a pretty darn good indication. That's a pretty good proxy for mm-hmm. where this insulin is. And I'll just, <clears throat> I'll just add one comment to that, that I think that well, a couple of comments here. I think you're absolutely right. Being in the carnivore space, there's a lot of people in this space who are in the quote keto space. And I really want to work against dogma regarding low carbohydrate diets and allay fears that all carbohydrates are bad. I'm going to title this podcast, will carbohydrates give me diabetes? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Carbohydrates do not cause diabetes. I have to respectfully disagree with some of my colleagues. And there's nuance. I don't really think my colleagues are saying that per se, but carbohydrates do not cause diabetes. As you eloquently put, it's more about the processing of the carbohydrates and mixing them with processed vegetable oils. If people have listened to the last few podcasts that I've done, the things that I have been railing against, the things that I have been beating the drum uh, to raise awareness of the way that they are affecting our metabolic health negatively are processed sugar, processed carbohydrates, and processed vegetable oils. These are the culprits. I do not believe that strawberries are causing diabetes. I do not believe that real raw honey is causing diabetes, and I'll show evidence for that uh, later in this podcast. I do not believe that, um, that other carbohydrates like squash, are causing diabetes, right? These are not the cause of diabetes. And I also don't believe that the cause of diabetes is is too much insulin. Now, sure, if you were going to, there may be some individual variation based on genetics, but I've known lots of people who are vegans or vegetarians, fruitarians, who are eating tons and tons of carbohydrates and have low triglycerides. They can have low to moderate fasting insulin. They really don't look insulin resistant. To say that carbohydrates cause insulin resistance is is a gross oversimplification. It's really not true. There's a there's much more nuance there that we're missing. And as we'll see, there are potential downsides to never having carbohydrates in your diet. Now, again, when I did a podcast with Stan Effording a few months ago, I said in that podcast that I believed that someone could be metabolically healthy by including carbohydrates in their diet. And I joked that half of my audience was going to lose their mind. And I think that Half of my audience or three fourths of my audience is going to lose their mind in this podcast. But look, you guys, we're not, we need to be open minded about this and look at the data. I'm not saying that everyone needs carbohydrates. I'm just saying that carbohydrates, in and of themselves, are not the enemy. The enemy is processed carbohydrates, which all of you know about. This is processed grains, refined sugars, and processed vegetable oils. Refer back to the podcast I did with Kate Shanahan. Now, I'm not saying that I like. You know, fiber, and we'll get to my my rant against fiber later on this podcast. I told you all at the beginning that I ate kabocha squash for you, and I hated it, and I didn't like the way it made me feel, and I don't like fiber, and I don't think humans need plants in their diet. But as we'll see, I do think that long-term ketogenic diets can lead to excessive glucose sparing and physiologic insulin resistance, and we shouldn't fear any spike in the glucose. This is what I'm concerned about that within the keto community, which is my family, I love you all, but I don't think we should be dogmatic. This isn't religious. This isn't about an ideology. This is about understanding what promotes human health. Within the low carb community, blood sugar spikes are treated as pariahs. They're treated as as unsavory characters that we don't want. And I want people to know this is not the enemy. It's normal for human blood sugar to spike and what's more important and the real nuance, the whole reason I wanted to do this podcast is to really combat some of what I see as too much dogma here, is that it's okay for your blood sugar to spike, but let's look at the morphology of that spike. Let's talk about how high it goes. Let's talk about your peak response. Let's talk about the area under the curve, which I'm going to show you all in one moment. And that's really the key. And let's talk about glycemic variability. Those are the precision measures of insulin sensitivity. Not an absolute glucose value. Now, certainly, if your glucose goes to 180, 190, 215, that's probably too high for an absolute overall glucose. And I love that you said we don't have a ton of data here, but the data seems to point to somewhere around 140 ish milligrams per deciliter, maybe even 150 as the cutoff. If your blood sugar is going above that, you might be creating some oxidative stress, you might be creating some endothelial dysfunction. So, how much time are you spending above that level? If you go above that for a moment, is it going to hurt you? Probably not. But as you all will see momentarily when we look at these actual readings, it's very clear when someone has a disordered postprandial glucose response. But I want you all to know that just having a glucose spike is not pathology and we need to not fear this. And that is something that I fear has been happening within the community that um, we are we're being told that you want an absolutely flat glucose level, which is in my opinion Totally false. You don't want that. You don't want that at all. And it's okay for your insulin to go up. It's okay for your body to make insulin. Insulin is not the enemy. Insulin doesn't make you fat in and of itself. That's false as well. The reason we focus so much on insulin, the reason I talk about insulin in my book, the reason that uh, we write about insulin, the reason we measure a fasting insulin is because that one value, a fasting insulin, can be another indicator of insulin sensitivity. I think it's one of the best single indicators and data points that we have. If your fasting insulin is elevated, you probably also have glycemic variability. But wearing a CGM and looking at this data, this is essentially probably even better than a fasting insulin at telling you about what your insulin sensitivity is. Because the whole reason that we're getting a fasting insulin is to give us some indication of your insulin sensitivity and glycemic variability can tell us that with just as much, if not more, accuracy and precision. So there's my little soapbox rant. Mm-hmm. I hope that no one in the keto community is offended. But we need to be realistic about this. We shouldn't be dogmatic. We shouldn't be religious. And if a low carb ketogenic diet is working for you, do that. I'm not afraid of them. You guys have all heard me talk about this. You've heard me debate Chris Masterjohn multiple times. You've read my book. If you haven't read my book, you should. Um, there, the evidence that a ketogenic diet is harmful for humans is really not there. But we also should be realistic and honest about the fact that it's okay. The evidence that glucose spikes below 140 that go up quickly and have a low area under the curve are harmful to humans is also not there. Both of those can coexist. And it's come to be my opinion at this point that some introduction of carbohydrates occasionally is good for what we might call metabolic flexibility. And we'll get to that. So that was a mouthful. That's my, little, uh, that's my little rant for this podcast, but let's just unpack that a little more um, as we move through this all. So I just want to show a few pieces of data that have to do with this glycemic variability. Um, a number of studies that were sent to me by my buddy, Tommy Wood, I'm hopefully going to get back on the podcast soon. Um, this has to do with glucose fluctuations like we're talking about. This is the pathology. Absolute glucose numbers, given they are less than 140 to 150 milligrams per deciliter are not pathologic, but these fluctuations in glucose levels, right? Here's a paper relationship between fluctuations in glucose levels measured by CGM monitoring and vascular endothelial dysfunction in type two diabetes mellitus. What they're saying is these blood glucose fluctuations are the problem, not a blood sugar of 130 or 120 after you ate five strawberries. That's not pathologic, okay? Yes. Um, this is the, the, the really the important thing. This gets a little technical. We call these MAGES, mean amplitude glycemic excursions with vascular endothelial dysfunction. Same thing. These are essentially synonymous with glycemic variability. The mean, so the average amplitude, how big something is, glycemic glucose excursion movement from baseline is, gauged, is used to gauge the degree of glucose level fluctuations. They play a significant role in vascular endothelial dysfunction and cardiovascular events. This is the key. This is the key, not absolute blood glucose values. Having a blood glucose spike that goes from 75 to 120 is not pathological, you guys. Not pathological. It's just not. Now, if you're doing that, eating half a cookie, that's not a great thing. You don't want to be eating junk food. I'm not saying it's okay to eat sugar and junk food. What I'm saying is don't fear that if that's coming from a strawberry, or a little bit of honey, or a little bit of carbohydrate from a non-processed source, from time to time. Another study: mean amplitude of glycemic excursions, a measure of diabetic instability, effect of daily glucose fluctuation on coronary plaque vulnerability in patients with pre-treated patients pretreated with lipid-lowering therapy. So again, what we're talking about here is endothelial dysfunction having to do with these MAGES, mean amplitude glycemic excursions, causing the inside of our blood vessels to become destabilized, inflamed, and leading to coronary plaque vulnerability, getting back to the original point of this podcast, which is we cannot know glycemic variability without wearing a CGM. It's just really impossible. DPP-4 inhibitors, peptidase 4 inhibitors, protective effect, on cognitive impairment in age diabetic patients with mild cognitive impairment. DPP4 inhibitors like citagliptin tend to improve glycemic excursion. Now, again, this is a pharmaceutical. There's a much easier way to improve glycemic yeah. excursion than giving someone a DPP4 inhibitor. But the point is illustrated larger mean amplitude of glycemic excursion val- values correlated with poorer mental status examination. And composite cognitive function scores. When they gave a drug, which I would not recommend, I'd say do lifestyle stuff instead, that improved mean amplitude glycemic excursions, then things were better in terms of the uh, cognitive outcomes. So, all right, hopefully everyone <laughs> really understands what we're driving at there. <laughs> but this is an important point because I fear that this dogmatism will limit our ability to grow as a community, that it will limit our health, and that it will be very stressful for people who won't include carbohydrates in their diet when their ketogenic diet is not serving them any longer or will create too much rigidity in their diets on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis and not allow them to have carbohydrates every once in a while. That's not the end of the world. It's not pathologic. So yeah, yeah. Paul,
1: I'm really glad you bring that up because I 100% agree, as you know. And I do worry about demonizing carbs to the extent that I have been. And I worry about people who people will set their glucose threshold sometimes to hundred being their max. And they get very upset if it goes above a hundred ever. And, and that's just creating more problems than it's helping. So with the carb recommendations itself, I do think with the nuance that like our traditional dietary guidelines for carbohydrate recommendations are pretty insane. They recommend... 45 to 65% of your calories to come from carbohydrates. And that's meant for the general population. I have seen very few people who can eat 65% of their calories from carbs, maybe only professional athletes, honestly. Um, So the fact that that's our general recommendation to the population at a whole is really, really alarming and scary because there's very, very, very few people who will do well on that high of carbohydrates. So what I want to point out is I'm glad the low carb community came out of all of that because our recommendations from our government are, are totally off kilter and are going to do more harm than good. But that doesn't mean we have to take the extreme version of that and say that all carbs are bad always and we have to be zero carbohydrates to be healthy. I also agree with you that I do not believe carbs cause insulin resistance I think that the wrong type of carbohydrates do like refined carbohydrates that we were talking about, but there's no evidence that carbohydrates in general cause insulin resistance, right? This just doesn't exist. They're not the problem. If you do have insulin resistance, then we do have to scale back your carbohydrates. Ketogenic diet, a very low carbohydrate diet works very well for people who already have insulin resistance because you have to remove the things that are making it worse. You know, you have to remove the instigators to these glycemic excursions. So if you already have insulin resistance, yeah, going keto, following very low carbohydrate is most likely going to be a really good approach for you to get those values back into normal ranges. But for a healthy individual who has normal glucose responses, normal insulin functioning, carbohydrates are not going to suddenly cause you to become insulin resistant. So I want to make that very clear because that's, that's not known and it's been misinterpreted and agreed. Data over dogma, always measure so you know for yourself, but sometimes it creates more harm than good. Like we'll get into with some of these people who never introduced carbohydrates for years on end and then their body becomes metabolically inflexible. Right, So the whole point of a lot of this, people doing ketogenic diets, very low carbohydrate diets, because they want to improve their metabolic flexibility, their, their goal, and I think that occasionally cycling in and out of ketosis is very valuable for that reason. I do about three months of a strict keto diet, usually in the winter, to just be used to using ketones for a while, and then I'll cycle back out. I think there's value to having ketones in your system. But if you become so reliant on ketones and free fatty acids as your fuel source, and you're never introducing glucose, then you have now become metabolically inflexible to glucose. And so now are we just creating a new problem on the opposite end of the spectrum. So the idea of metabolic flexibility is that our body can react to whatever fuel is available, right? So we can oxidize the fuel based off of fuel availability. And so that requires a lot of crosstalk between the body and metabolic disorders are really a function of this metabolic inflexibility, but we want to make sure we don't cause that by completely removing one of the metabolic substrates, which is glucose carbohydrates. So I really want to hone in on that and make that super clear. Cause I a hundred percent agree with you.
0: And I think you're, you're so right. I'm, I'm taking a nutrition, I'm taking the medicine nutrition board exam tomorrow And um, the guidelines are 55% carbohydrates in the diet. I'm just thinking that is impossible. Like I could not not get all of the micronutrients that I need in a day and eat 55% of my calories from carbohydrates. So I agree with you completely. The low carb movement is amazing, but there's a difference between strict keto, zero carb and a carbohydrate threshold, which is less than 25% of your daily calories. Again, we'll get to what I'm doing now it's still low carb, even though I'm eating honey twice a day, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the amount of carbohydrates I'm getting and the proportion of my daily calories that they are comprising. So a carbohydrate recommendation of 55% is absolutely ludicrous. There's no way that anyone can get to that without eating processed carbohydrates or processed sugars. It really uh, exonerates all those foods because you just, the messaging from mainstream media, from mainstream dietitians, that for the board exam for medicine that I am taking tomorrow, is 55% of your calories from carbohydrates, which is absurd. You cannot, there's no way that you could get enough iron, zinc, choline, carnitine, these animal-based nutrients, eating 55% of your calories from carbohydrates. You just couldn't do it. It would be insane unless you were doing Coca-Cola and meat, which would be a not a great diet, <laughs> right? Yeah. Unless you're doing pure sugar and steak and liver. <laughs> now, one of the things that I will admit is that I could have been clearer about this in my book. If those of you listening have read The Carnivore Code, I do talk about this in my book and I say carbohydrates are not the problem, but I should have probably been a little bit more clear about this. In the book, I took this stance kind of defending a carnivore diet, defending a, defending a pure carnivore diet saying, hey, ketones are fine. Ketones are not dangerous. I agree with you completely, Kara. I don't think ketones are dangerous. I think that it's good to be in ketosis sometimes, but what we're saying here is you don't need to be dogmatic or religious about it. And it's probably good to cycle in and out every once in a while And when we get to reviewing the CGM data, the listener will see that, the watcher will see that very clearly with these elevated fasting insulin, well, I should say elevated fasting glucose values throughout the whole day. So there's a lot here. It's not to say that low carb isn't valuable. It's to Mm -hmm. say that carbohydrates are not the problem. (laughs) And and this is where the CGM can really help us kind of dig into some of this. And as we get to look at these data points, as we look at these values, I really urge those listening to not think, to really move beyond the conditioning, to fear any glycemic response, any glucose bump. That's not a, that's not a real issue. We really don't have evidence for that. And I talk about some of that in the book that you can even do overfeeding studies with carbohydrates purely, and you don't really cause insulin resistance. You don't cause weight gain. It's, as we said, it's this combination of processed vegetable oil, processed carbohydrates. And when you put a CGM on, you can see this very clearly when these people get disordered responses. So, So we've talked about this so much. Should we just start looking at some of these and and show people what we're talking about? Um, So I will do, I'll do a screen share and start with some of my data and we can talk about this because I want to do a series of podcasts now beginning at this point with um, this CGM stuff. I'm also going to do a podcast. I've got a bunch of podcasts coming out, you guys, on GI GI stuff. And, um, I want to, um, I want to show people what my actual gut microbiome looks like. I'm doing a gut microbiome test. I'm going to do repeat labs. If those of you listening want to know what my, uh, labs look like from the past to doing a strict carnivore diet with no carbohydrates, I've done a previous blood work podcast on my library of fundamental health. You can see that I'm going to do another lab blood work podcast with my updated labs now that I've been including carbohydrates, but let's just talk about what I did for this experiment. So I have been including carbohydrates in my diet pretty much every day now for the last two months plus, two to three months. And the reason I did this was a couple fold. I knew I was going to do this podcast. I knew I was going to wear a CGM. And I wanted to see after more than a year and a half of being uh, a strict carnivore, or I should say a, a zero carb carnivore, I wanted to see how carbohydrates felt. Because I fell prey a little bit to the the messaging that any glycemic spike was a bad thing. And I'll tell you that eating carbohydrates for the first time a few months ago, I was like, how am I going to feel? Am I going to get brain fog? Am I going to lose this amazing mental clarity I get with ketosis? And guess what, you guys? I didn't. I didn't get brain fog. I didn't lose mental clarity. The first couple of days were probably a little bit funky. And what we know is that when we don't eat carbohydrates for long amounts of time, the body does develop glucose sparing. Now, this is not the same as pathologic insulin resistance, but we could technically call it physiologic insulin resistance at the level of the muscles. I think a more accurate descriptor is glucose sparing, which means that if you're doing a carnivore diet, if you're doing a zero-carb diet, if you're doing a long-term, very low-carb ketogenic diet, and you reintroduce carbohydrates, you're going to see a spike in your blood sugar for the first two to three days because your muscles aren't really used to seeing this glucose. It's going to take some time for your body to switch but that really means that you have become metabolically inflexible, right? And this is what will happen to people who are on zero carb diets. Others in the health space have talked about this. You will, quote, fail an OGTT, but not after 72 hours. And I've talked about this before. Even a pregnant woman, if she eats low carb the night before or for two or three days before her oral glucose tolerance test as part of pregnancy, she might fail it um, in some situations. So It's not to say it's a bad thing, but certainly for me, I think that if I had had a CGM on, I did not at this time, but if I had had a CGM on when I first ate carbohydrates on a carnivore diet, you would have seen my blood sugar spike quite a bit. Now, there is an indication from one of my clients of this in my book, The Carnivore Code. I have two CGMs in the book, and one of them shows his blood sugar on a carnivore diet. It's a flat line. In another one, he ate 50 grams of carbohydrates from blueberries, and you see a pretty wild postprandial glucose response. Now, in the book, I wish I had highlighted the fact that this means that he's metabolically inflexible. And I think that if he kept eating those blueberries, that response would have been more uh, gradual. But this is what my blood sugar looks like most days right now with my CGM. So, ta-da, here it is. This is Carnivore MD's um, blood sugars from, I don't know what day this was. This is probably the, do you, there it is, 512. So we're recording this podcast on May the 22nd, I believe. These are my blood sugars from the 12th of May this is all sleeping. I get up in the morning, my blood sugar when I'm waking up is probably somewhere in here. It's probably 81 or 83, or maybe in the low to high seventies. I usually do a little bit of work and, um, and then I eat breakfast later in the morning and you can see here's a spike. Now, most people would look at this and say, Oh, you had a blood sugar spike. You shouldn't have eaten that honey. And you can see my breakfast is here, steak, liver, egg yolks, and honey. This is what carnivore md eats in a day you guys. You can watch my what i eat in a day video if you want to see. But this is what we mean area under the curve. So if you're watching this on YouTube this will make sense. You can draw some sort of an imagined baseline here and you integrate all of the area here, right? This is not a really big area under the curve. It goes up, it comes down quickly, it peaks at 133 and you can't quite see, I can't trace on the computer here. This is about an hour that I'm back to baseline of under 80 milligrams or right about 80 milligrams per deciliter within one hour of eating. This has got to be more than 70 grams of carbohydrates from raw organic honey. This is a lot of carbohydrates. That's
1: a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a peak, right?
0: (laughs) So this may look like uh, an excursion. This may look like a bad thing, but in the moment we will show you guys what a disordered glucose curve looks and you'll see the difference looks like, and you'll see the difference. Then I go through my day. I might've had a workout here in the afternoon, a little bump, And then I have more honey in the evening at my dinner time. I like to eat uh, early in the day. People who know my routine will know that I eat two meals a day. I try and eat them within a six-hour window, and I try and eat dinner by 3 or 4 p.m. I probably had a little bit less honey in the evening, as we'll talk about. I have observed a pattern where I am less uh, insulin-sensitive, quote-unquote, in the evening, meaning that if I eat an equivalent amount of carbohydrates in the evening and the morning, I'll see a bigger glucose spike in the evening. So that's, again, another thing I've learned. Now, this is my baseline. I want you guys to look at this. This is not much glycemic variability. The app for NutriSense will calculate the standard deviation. And looking at this week, what did we calculate the standard deviation for a day like this was 11 or 12%? Yeah, about 11. 11%. Great, yeah. We didn't go into this earlier in the podcast. But what's cool about this app with NutriSense, or I'm sure um, other companies may do the same thing as well. They'll give you a standard deviation, which is perhaps one of the more important numbers to indicate this level of glycemic variability. And we don't want this to be above 20. Most diabetics are above 30, and mine was 11. You can see there's not a whole lot of glycemic variability during the day. Some of these nighttime numbers are a little tricky. What we've decided is that sometimes I'm moving around in my sleep, causing things to go up and down a little bit. But these daytime numbers are pretty darn stable. You can see the spike here, again, not much area under the curve at all. So let's compare this to someone that's disordered and I'll have you walk me through it. So which one should we use?
1: Yeah, that second one here, you can tell is is very clearly disordered. Uh, So she had what, two eggs and a piece of toast and avocado. And so that's less than 70 grams of carbs for sure. It's probably 20 grams of carbs and the glucose spikes to about, what, 180, and then it takes about four hours to come back down to normal. So that's completely abnormal. I would not, that's insulin resistance in a graph, if you will. So that's not what we want to see at all. And you can also tell fasting glucose values are at about 112, 110, Um, also not looking so good. And then you can see the second response. So she ate something later in the evening, and there's a small glucose increase at first, and then there's a larger one almost two hours after you eat. And I see this a lot in the evening. Like you said, people do have less insulin sensitivity in the evening. Our insulin works on a circadian rhythm, just like our other hormones, just like melatonin. And so we have less insulin sensitivity. In the evening and we're not secreting as much insulin and so what happens a lot for people is that they'll eat meals at night and when do people normally have sweets and treats and desserts at night that's like actually the worst thing you can do i'm not encouraging sweets ever but if you're gonna do it do it like in the morning when you first wake up honestly don't do it at night i see this over and over every single day is somebody will have carbohydrates refined carbohydrates sugar in the evening, and their glucose values overnight while they're sleeping stay 140, 150 all night long. So the whole time you're sleeping, it is in these really elevated diabetic levels because your body just doesn't process food that well late at night, especially if you're already showing signs of insulin resistance. So it's very important about that meal timing, especially refined carbohydrates, especially added sugars. So I I really like to focus on that because a lot of people eat late. And if you are going to eat late, if your schedule can't control it at all, make that just you know protein fat. Don't consume your carbohydrates late at night if you are going to consume some. So that's a big rule of thumb.
0: And I think um, in general, it's pretty clear that eating late at night is a bad thing. We know Mm -hmm. that insulin and melatonin are um, kind of. contradictory hormones. And if you give a big insulin spike in the evening, you're not going to, you're going to sleep less. If you use an aura ring, you're going to see all of this that you're going to yeah. have poor sleep. So don't eat late at night if you can avoid it.
1: Yeah. And sleeping and glucose are actually like a bi-directional effect. So this is really important. So bad sleep in, in the first place affects our glucose values the next day, but also high glucose values affect our sleep. So it works in both directions. Um, people who went to bed with high glucose levels, this affects your nervous system and causes you to not be able to fall asleep as fast, but also prevents that deep sleep, which you can see in your aura ring. If you have that sugar at night, if you're eating late at night, your glucose is high at night, you're just not going to get the same quality of sleep. So this is very important in and of itself, not only the fact that you're Har- harming your endothelial cells and increasing your risk for diabetes by having it high all night. But you're also just going to get crappy sleep, which makes you feel crappy. So it's, it's very important to monitor how you're eating a general rule of thumb. I just tell people to eat during daylight hours, like eat when the sun is up. Don't eat when it's dark out. That's a good general rule of thumb, but that evening meal also lower carbohydrates is, is better for most people.
0: So I want to share a bit more of my data I told you guys I was going to make some sacrifices for you. I ate strawberries, I ate fruit, um, and I ate some kabocha squash. This is the 9th of May. You can see this morning peak. I got uh, honey in the morning, and I went to about um, 140. Again, the peak above 140 is very small. Now, contrast this. Tiny, yeah. Contrast this to the one that we were just looking at that was abnormal, right? That doesn't look the same. You have to look at the x the y axis here. This person has a fasting at 112, they went up to 180. Their peaks are much larger and though this one is showing a peak for my blood sugar, my max is 142 right there or 146 on this day. Really small above that, that little tip. Again, my baseline is much lower. And here in the evening, I ate strawberries, and you can see two things about this peak. Um, <clears throat> because strawberries are more fibrous, which I don't like, and I'm going to do a fiber rant in this video as well, um, it gets spread out a little more. I ate less carbohydrates. In the morning, I eat 50 to 75 grams of carbohydrates and honey. Uh, it's what I've found works for me right now. I like it. And then with a pound of strawberries, this is a pound of strawberries, you guys, it's how much I love you all. Uh, uh, I can only get maybe 35 to 40 grams of carbs, it still spikes my blood sugar a little bit. I get pretty much the same slope going up, but you'll see there's kind of a long tail here. And if you integrated the area under both of these curves and normalized for the amount of carbohydrates, I think you'd essentially see the same glycemic index of both of these foods. Now, I'll just clarify that term. Glycemic index is a term that gets thrown out a lot. It it actually is the integral of the area under the curve of a response to a certain amount of carbohydrates relative to the area under the curve of an equivalent amount of glucose. So when we say that a glycemic index of a food is 60%, it means that if you ate 50 or 75 grams of that food, um, and you compared that to 75 grams of glucose, that the area under the curve for that food would be 60% of the area under the curve for 70 grams of glucose. Now, what we should take away from this is that it's going to be very individual, what the area under the curve is, people may react differently to different carbohydrates, and that the area under the curve here for these strawberries is relative to the amount of carbohydrates I eat is essentially the same as this honey. These are not really having a different glucose response. I don't think either of these is pathological. And I'll ask you if you think so, Kara. But what I see here is that honey isn't that bad. And I'll get into my love of honey later in this podcast and why I don't think it's that bad. But what do you see between these two curves? Anything that I'm missing here?
1: No, I would make a very similar assessment. They, While they look different when you first glance at them, they're very similar in that, yeah, one has a little bit of a longer tail, but the other one's a little bit higher. I would probably guess that if you ate those strawberries as the first meal of the day, it, that tail end might be a little bit shorter just because that decreased insulin sensitivity at night. But yeah, neither of them are pathological. I'm not concerned with either of these. They're not red flags of any sort.
0: And so we can move on to... This other one, this is the one that I showed before, morning and night with honey, kind of these two peaks. And you can see my overnight glucose is pretty low. It's in the 80s. I get this little peak here and then it goes back down. Which is
1: normal too, because a lot of people get a little tiny peak between like 4 and 6 a.m. And that's just cortisol starting to react. Your liver is creating some glucose. Everybody gets that, but it should come back down. So people Hmm. with insulin resistance, it peaks around 4M and then it doesn't come back down. So that would be concerning, but it is normal to have a little peak in the middle of the night.
0: So this is what I did for you all last night. I didn't like this. I ate honey in the morning (laughs) yesterday on the 21st of May. And you can see here, my peak doesn't even go to 108. Look at the Y-axis on these. Here's my fasting, or at least my, you know, my overnight blood sugar is around 70 or 60s. My peak in the morning goes to 108- I did a workout in the middle of the day at the gym. It goes up a little bit. And then I eat here and I ate kabocha squash, which is not something I like because of all the fiber. And you can see what happened to my blood sugar. Well, it didn't go up that high, but look at the area under the curve here. It's a very prolonged peak. It probably affected my sleep um, a little bit poorly because it was just so long that it was kind of elevated above what I've come to consider as my baseline. So I am no fan of fiber, you guys, but I wanted to show you the difference between a honey peak and a kabocha squash peak. And the area under this peak is even bigger than the area under the honey peak for an equivalent amount of carbohydrates. So, if we're looking at glycemic variability, I don't think either of these is bad. But there's there's no magic to eating fiber with your carbohydrates, in my opinion. And I don't think this is a this is pathologic peak. This did not feel good to me. I was. I can feel my stomach is distended. I can feel that it's very full when I eat fiber now. And as you all know from listening to me previously and reading my book, and I'll go into some of these studies in a second, we know that fiber can be detrimental in terms of nutrient absorption. But what do you see when you're looking at those two curves, Kara? Anything that I'm missing there?
1: Yeah, you could definitely tell the difference, even just between mm-hmm. the squash and the strawberry. Um, which is, you know, they're different than honey. The strawberries have a little bit more fiber than the squash, but the squash is a much bigger area under the curve. Again, I agree with you that I wouldn't consider this like alarming. It's not by any sort of medical standards, a high glycemic variability, but it is a much bigger area under the curve than the strawberry. And the other thing I will say, while this isn't scientific, people tell me this over and over, everyone starts to feel good at a certain level of, Their baseline glucose and a certain level of glycemic variability. People, it really enhances the mind body connection to be able to see what's happening on the inside with real data in real time and then how you feel subjectively. And a lot of people will be, when I go above 120, I don't feel good. And I trust them, like that has legitimacy to it. And some people say, when I have a prolonged glucose spike like you did, like maybe it didn't go high and it's not considered pathological, but it went on for three hours, and I just don't feel good. And so that is something to take in consideration as well. It's, it's not necessarily scientific, and it's extremely subjective. But people tell me this over and over without being prompted that they'll find a certain number that they just feel good at. And I do think you have to acknowledge that and listen to your body at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. And I could tell last night, I wasn't super stoked. So I want to show um, this is a typical carnivore diet. This is not my diet right now. But this is pretty much this is even a little more bumpy than I've seen other carnivores but this is a carnivore diet without honey and carbohydrates. You can see that when you in a normal day, this person's blood sugar is kind of moving around. They get a spike to about 95 here in the middle of the day. They go down in the middle of the day while they're walking and they come back up. This doesn't look incredibly different than mine with honey absent a few moderate spikes for the the uh, carbohydrates that I'm eating, but If this is your baseline, the baseline looks pretty similar to mine. They do even have a spike here. And so I just want to contrast that with what I'm doing right now um, and show people what a a typical carnivore diet might look like uh, without the honey. Again, this is not mine right now, but in the past, this is pretty much what I've seen and what other people I've worked with have seen something like this pretty flat. You can see these in my book as well if you want to see what a, a carnivore diet looks like without carbohydrates. But again, we don't need to fear the carbohydrates just because there's a spike Mm -hmm. there. It's not a, not a bad thing. We put in a little, a little gif here of my data. Um, you can see tracking throughout the day. Again, this is the 12th of May, um, with my morning and my evening and how you can follow the blood sugars throughout the day. Here's the 13th of May, um, that morning peak and then a little bit more in the evening, in the evening on that day, Um, you could see that I ate more fruit. So um, here we're back on the 12th. And then in a moment here, you'll see the data again from the 13th, where I had fruit in the evening. And you get this kind of wider peak um, with essentially the same area under the curve as which peach and strawberries on that fruit day. So uh, here's the 14th of May and um, back to the 12th. So again, I love you all, but I don't think I'll be eating fruit and kabocha squash for any time in the future. I really found with this experiment that if I eat a moderate amount of honey, even a pretty good amount of honey by most people's standards, 50 to 75 grams of carbohydrates of honey in the morning, my blood sugar stays under 130. It comes back very quickly. It doesn't affect the blood sugars the rest of the day. And I'll eat a little bit less in the evening to try to keep that blood sugar around 140. It feels fine to me. And, um, why am I doing this in the first place? Why have I continued it? I found that, um, though again, I didn't do a carnivore diet. I didn't do a CGM when I was doing a strict carnivore diet, but I just found that long-term ketogenic diets for me, I wanted to see what it felt like with carbs and I felt a little better with carbohydrates. I have to admit in the gym and overall, and I really was struggling to manage my electrolytes with a long-term ketogenic diet. I have to admit this, you guys. And in the book, I talk about this and I say I was doing lots of salt and magnesium and you can do it. I just found that I had much less cramping and um, it was much easier to surf and work out and do movement practices when I included carbohydrates from time to time. And then I didn't see a negative to including them every day. Now I will say again that I am doing carbohydrates within a small window that my eating window every day is, is compressed, that I'm waking up in the morning and I have ketones in my blood. I'll check my ketones in the morning. I have ketones in my blood. I'm clearing out my liver glycogen overnight. I'm waking up in ketosis and then I'm giving my body back some carbohydrates. I don't have any problem doing long periods of fasting now. I don't have any problems going between meals. I'm not getting hypoglycemic between meals, as you all can see from my blood sugars. And if you go back to look at my data, especially the data from even um, yesterday the um, or any of these days this week, we can see that In answer to the question of this podcast, carbohydrates do not cause insulin resistance. This is not an insulin resistant profile. I've been doing honey and carbohydrates every day for two months and I don't have an elevated fasting blood sugar. I don't have an inappropriate postprandial response and I don't have an elevated fasting insulin when I've checked it in the lab. So carbohydrates do not cause insulin resistance, you guys. If carbohydrates cause insulin resistance, if honey every day cause insulin resistance, this would look very differently. All of these would look very differently. This is not an insulin-resistant profile, and this is after months of using this carbohydrate every day. Honey is not causing insulin resistance for me. And for me, it does appear that it's helping me manage my electrolytes more easily, and I don't see any downside to it. Does that mean that I won't do some days that aren't full carnivore, or I should say zero-carb carnivore? No, it doesn't. I definitely do that from time to time. And it's important to note that for me, the honey is not causing... Uh, It's not causing hypoglycemia. It's not causing brain fog. It's not causing me to crave foods or have problems between meals. I can still go long amounts of times between meals. So it's a very interesting thing. Now, from a purist perspective, before you guys all pitchfork me, honey, you could even say that honey is carnivore, right? I'm not not eating. I actually have found that I don't like fiber and I want to get into some of the stuff on honey. And I want to get into stuff on some of the stuff on fiber before we wrap up this podcast, but I don't like the way I feel when I eat fiber. And I was reminded of that doing these experiments. I don't like the way I feel when I eat fruit. I don't like the way I feel when I eat kabocha. It takes a long time to digest in my stomach. It feels very full. My blood sugars are no different. They're essentially the same area under the curve. And so why would I eat those things? As you all know, I don't believe there are any unique nutrients in those things that we need if we're eating nose to tail I also don't believe that the polyphenols in there are beneficial for humans. If you've read my book, you know that. I have an end-stage polyphenol deficiency, which I frequently flaunt on Instagram. Um, and you can see pictures of my end-stage polyphenol deficiency there. And I don't think fiber is beneficial for humans. In fact, I think fiber is damaging for humans. And I'll get into some of that data in a moment. So that's where I'm at right now. And again, I know this is going to be a very interesting thing for people. A lot of people are asking me, why are you using honey? Well, because I want to be metabolically flexible, and I found that having carbohydrates, to a small extent in the day, and I probably have a little more than 100 grams of carbs per day, improved my metabolic flexibility and improved my electrolyte handling, made me feel like I was performing better at my athletic endeavors, and it's not even really a plant food. It's a fermented nectar from a flower. To me, it seems extremely benign, and I believe that evolutionarily, as you're suggesting, Kara, we probably would've had times where we were in ketosis, for months or weeks or days at a time, and then had an input of carbohydrates. And that kind of prevents uh, what we might call glucose uh, sparing at the muscles or physiologic insulin resistance. So um, I'm rambling now, but I want to share this data, which is also something you can find on the app. These are my analytics from the 20th of May, and you can see that the standard deviation is 11. So it's quite low, which is what you really want. On this day, my max was 113. I was in range, quote, you know, meaning I was less than 140, 100% of the day, no spikes. And um, again, that standard deviation being very low is is a key factor. Were I insulin resistant from doing honey every day for two months, my standard deviation would be much higher. So I want to show something that's interesting. And this is potentially the downside of a long-term ketogenic diet. And again, there are many benefits to a ketogenic diet. We acknowledge that clearly. I acknowledge that clearly. Um, But I want to show you guys what we might consider something like uh, physiologic insulin resistance, glucose sparing looks like. And this can happen in someone, this is in someone who's been doing a ketogenic diet for many years. I believe five years, this person, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So zero carbs for about five years. Okay. Um, And as he pulls up the data, basically what we see is with each, it it doesn't occur in the first year of a zero diet carbohydrate or zero carbohydrate diet. But after you hit, you know, year one, two, three, that fasting glucose just slowly starts to creep up. And so you can see this person, their fasting glucose is about 120. And this is after five years of being in strict, strict ketosis. So there's no, there's very little variability. You know, there's no carbs in the diet. So there's no swings in the glucose, but the whole baseline is much higher. And as we talked about, we like to see a fasting glucose below 90. So to me, this is concerning. Um, like you said, this is called physiological insulin resistance or adaptive glucose sparing. This is different than pathological insulin resistance that's occurring in diabetes. But what's happening is that the muscles start to go into glucose refusal mode and they really only want fat and they really only want ketones because that's what it's now learned is the only fuel source coming in. But we do have glucose sensitive organs. So the body starts to compensate with this by creating more endogenous glucose. So the liver is creating glucose to make sure there's always some available because it has learned that there is never going to be any glucose coming in from food. And like you said, you can see this all the time. It's well documented on these false alarms with the OGTTs. So these people who are very low carbohydrate, when they do an OGTT and they have 75 grams of glucose, all of a sudden it shocks the system and they will definitely be labeled as a diabetic. I've had many people come to me who are like, I got diagnosed with gestational diabetes because I failed an OGTT." And then I asked, well, were you on a very low carbohydrate diet? And they're like, yeah. And, you know, nobody brought this to their attention. They thought they had gestational diabetes. They most likely didn't. You know, there's no way to prove that in retrospect. But we do some tests to see what their insulin sensitivity is, to see what their glucose tolerance is. And like you said, about three days of eating about 100, 150 grams of carbohydrates for those three days in a row. And then that goes back to normal. So that does indicate that this is a temporary problem, temporary insulin resistance. So we don't know. It's a little controversial if this is a good thing or a bad thing. But like you said, to me, this indicates metabolic inflexibility, which is, is not the goal of any of this. So if our body now is inflexible to using glucose and it takes three days to retrain it, how to use glucose, that concerns me a little bit. And you know, for the most part, all of the research that's been done on, you know, a fasting glucose being high and showing it associated with cardiovascular disease and all these other health outcomes, they're not usually accounting for insulin. I went back and looked and they're, you know, they're controlling for BMI, they're controlling for smoking, they're controlling for triglycerides, all these other factors, but very few of them control for insulin. So there is the question of, you know, if you're following a ketogenic diet and your fasting glucose is high, really high, 120 high, and your insulin is really low, you know, does that have the same detriment? I'm definitely concerned about it. I don't think this is physiologically normal to be without carbs for that long. I don't think it's evolutionarily probably what was happening. You know, most likely there was times of honey and times of fruit or carbs in the summer. And we most likely cycled between a higher carbohydrate, lower carbohydrate, So it concerns me from a metabolic flexibility standpoint, but um, it's up for debate. I don't like seeing it. And then when people are concerned about it and they want to bring that down, we incorporate some carbohydrates into their diet. And at first, they're going to have massive glucose spikes and it's going to freak them out and it's going to make them even more anti-carb because they see this huge response as their body is relearning. But if we do it enough, that fasting glucose goes down fairly quickly within weeks. So it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, I don't know how you feel about it from a metabolic health standpoint, but it concerns me.
0: I have some concerns about it too. And I have to kind of give a hat tip to my friends, Dr. Marcola and others who have really been championing this idea of cyclic ketosis mm-hmm. for years. And this idea, as you're saying that, isn't it interesting physiologically that we can go six months or nine months in ketosis and we don't see an elevation in fasting glucose? And then if we go longer than that, if we go more than a seasonal year cycle, we start to see it in some people. And I wonder, and I've seen it in my clients. I've seen people with fasting glucose 106, 95, things like this. And it kind of creeps up. And every year it gets to be a little higher. And 120 to me is pretty darn high. And I think, wow, evolutionarily, that's someone who's never getting any carbohydrates year after year after year, which probably isn't something that would have happened to us evolutionarily. Am I saying that ketones are not beneficial, that low-carb diets are not good for humans? No. I think they're very good for humans. We know that. We know that we probably need to balance amkinase with mTOR. We need to balance catabolism with anabolism. anabolism. We need to balance housekeeping with um, muscle building and mTOR. These are really beneficial. And I've done plenty of podcasts with Dom DiAgostino and David Sinclair talking about the benefits of ketones, the benefits of a ketogenic metabolism, NAD to NADH metabolism and ratios, the turning on sirtuins, I talk about all this in my book, and I'm not debating or um, disagreeing with any of those previous things that I had put forth. I'm just saying that the cyclic nature of it is probably the evolutionarily way, evolutionary way forward, and we see that by looking at these metabolic changes. That two to three months of ketosis, probably totally physiologically consistent. That's a winter. That's a mm-hmm. winter in Northern Europe.
1: Yeah, and it's completely hap- normal. Yeah. yeah.
0: What happens in the spring? You get some carbohydrates every once in a while. And, you know, you might get carbohydrates once, twice, three times a week. Yeah. Is it possible that I'm doing too many carbohydrates, eating carbohydrates every day? It's absolutely possible. I don't see any indications on my labs that it's a bad thing. I'm not doing a ton. And I don't see any, any, any indications on my CGM that it's a bad thing. But perhaps the, the middle ground is a better path. But I think some sort of cyclic ketosis and cyclic low-carb dieting is, probably makes more sense to me than strict, persistent, perpetual very low carb ketogenic diets, which I think can cause problems, like I was essentially having with electrolyte balance. And so it's just this opening up of the the ideology and saying, "Hey, if this is your issue, this isn't pathologic to have some carbs every once in a while." And so I am worried about this type of thing. And you know, this type of glycation is different. You know, the formation of advanced glycation end products, glyoxal, methylglyoxal, uh, endogenously is different than the type of glycation that occurs with a fasting glucose that's elevated, but this is essentially what we're worried about, that if your fasting glucose is 120 or 110, are you having more glycation of natural killer cells, of and um, endothelial proteins in your blood vessels and having less turnover of those things? Are you having more problems with kidney function and the glomerulus? In these people who are having elevated fasting blood sugars of 110, 120, I want to see their urinary protein. I want to see albumin in their urine. I want to see microalbuminuria. I want to see potential evidence that I can look at clinically that might indicate that they're having some sort of issue with, um, with this advanced glycation happening in their body due to these elevated fasting blood sugar levels. I, You're right. We don't have the data to, to firmly say that it's horrible yet, but I just can't see it as a good thing. So I get a little worried about that. I want to show a few more of these CGMs. There's so much to talk about here. I, I got this email the other day. Somebody was like, I love your podcast. I, love, I wish it were a little shorter. And I think, yeah, but <laughs> there's so much cool stuff to talk about. I just can't. I can't not. I don't know. So we'll try and we'll try and be as succinct as we can as we wrap up here. But there's a few things that I want to show. So I want to show from the CGM file that we have a few other people that are quite interesting because we have a we have a vegan doctor in here that I would like to show their CGM. And I want to show this one as well, which is high glycemic variability. So just so people can see the contrast, you'd highlighted this. This is what high glycemic variability looks like, you guys, right? This is not what mine looks like. This is not what someone on a long-term ketogenic diet looks like, but this is very high glycemic variability. This is probably if I had to guess, this is maybe what the bearded nurses would look like. I can't say that for sure, but this is what maybe we're looking we'll find at. find out. Here. Yeah, maybe we'll find out if he does it, right? So that's a high glycemic variability peak there. So here's the vegan doctor's blood sugars. And what do we see on this one, Cara? Um,
1: well, we see, first of all, a lot of Sleeping in because all of those blue marks are when you're snoozing your alarm clock. So ignore that. That's a little distracting. But we also see a massive postprandial response, especially in the evening, that area under the curve in the evening is huge it goes up to, I don't know, 170, 180. 180. 180, Yeah. Look at that. Look at the y-axis here. It goes up to 180 almost three times. So that's kind of what I was saying when I see these like triple double spikes, that's usually an indication to me that there's a combination of a refined carbohydrate with a refined oil. Like I see that response every time with that combination, because your body is processing the oil is Delaying digestion, and then the body is processing this massive carbohydrate load. It's usually acellular carbohydrates that are refined, such as any flour-based item. It doesn't matter if it's whole wheat flour; that's a big um, misconception. That does not mean it's a whole food. It is still very processed and refined, and that area into the curve is is big. There's no denying it. We don't know what the food was, but I could take a pretty good guess that it was a combination of refined carbohydrates and refined oils.
0: Yeah. We know it was vegan. And then I'll just, so on all these graphs that we're showing those watching on YouTube, just make sure you look at the Y-axis here. Mm -hmm. Look at the fasting blood sugar. It never goes below, much below 105. Pretty much all day, this fasting blood sugar is about 105. And this person, you know, has their level set between 70 and looks like 140. But Mm -hmm. remember that my fasting blood sugar was down here around 70 or 60 or 80. This is a vegan eating a plant-based diet. Fasting blood sugar all day is 120 here in the middle of the night, hitting the snooze 10 times in a row. Um, A peak to 140 um, in the middle of the night, or this is in the middle of the day. And then a peak here with a blood sugar that's much wider than the peaks that I was getting in this huge postprandial response at dinner with these three peaks. Again, you guys all know I've got a bone to pick with vegans. I'm not going to deny it. I... I don't think a plant-based diet is healthy, nor should you, but I just thought it was interesting that we could get data, which is so cool from so many that you've seen in NutriSense saying, hey, this isn't this isn't even really a healthy looking CGM for somebody that's eating plant-based. Now, there's a different doctor on your website, um, maybe I can pull that up, who was also a vegan and uh, gave a testimonial that that she was quite surprised to find that she was pre-diabetic when she did her uh, CGM as well. So this is perhaps not a, an isolated feeling or an isolated mm-hmm. experience. So I'll just show this one real quickly. This is a yeah, difference. Yeah.
1: She's a doctor and she was measuring her A1C and a fasting glucose level, as most people do, and they were all coming back normal. But then a, when you have a CGM on, you get much, much, much more information. So it became very clear right away that uh, she was having abnormal postprandial responses to glucose. Um, yeah, it'll keep sh- shifting. But so it, it was obvious. So she was eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, whole wheat flours, again, um, processed foods, low protein, and the, it was not looking good. So we changed a lot of things about her diet and got to correct the prediabetes before it was apparent on labs and before it became an actual problem. So that's the thing. There's a lot of times problems are occurring before you can see it on traditional lab markers. Um, This is, like you said, with the hypertension, this is a silent thing that's happening in the background are these elevated postprandial responses. You may feel kind of lethargic after a meal. That's become normalized as a normal 2 p.m. slump. It's not normal. We shouldn't feel super lethargic. A lot of the times that means you're having some sort of reactive hypoglycemia after a meal, which is an indication of high insulin levels, insulin resistance, So uh, most of the time though, you can't feel these things going on and they're being missed by traditional markers, but there's problems occurring over and over. And so you really have to see the data to know what's happening inside your body.
0: Super powerful. Go back to this high glycemic variability graph. We pulled the data for that. You can see the standard deviation 22.79. This is high glycemic variability. The max was 237. Yeah, it's tough. Here's a 24-hour graph of... Standard deviation of 24, which is abnormal for a non-diabetic, and you say notice the double, triple spikes and prolonged glucose responses. So I just want to show these to you guys, so you can see the difference that this has. I mean, this is in the middle. Of, I don't know what time of the day this is, but look at this postprandial. Yeah, look at this different. postprandial hypoglycemia. Yeah. Okay. Look at these huge, wide peaks. These double, triple peaks. This is not normal. Not normal in any way. Stretch or the or uh, way stretch way. Not normal in any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) Um tell me about this one.
1: Yeah, you can see I think if you scroll down a little, the meal is like a a fried like beer battered fish. So again, that's that's flour and oil. Like this is the essential spike I see. And it's at night, so it only probably made it worse. So technically we stayed below 140. So if you don't understand the nuances of glycemic variability, you might incorrectly i don't know if you could but you might incorrectly say like i always stayed in the green zone and didn't go above that threshold and then you could think it's healthy but it's very obvious that it's not and this is a non-diabetic non-obese person so this is what's happening in the background when you you don't realize it but we're having this massive area under the curve it's huge and the double triple spike like we showed
0: again pretty another bad, one here. Yeah. pretty wide spike pretty wide spike here more of the graphs. What's going on in this one?
1: Yeah, those are Fritos and cookies. You can see too, like that big dip afterwards, but then it comes back up. And then that's the occurrence in the middle of the night from the cookies the night before. So that's what I see all the time when people eat sweets and junk food right before they go to bed, which unfortunately happens a lot. And then the glucose values are in these diabetic ranges while you're sleeping because your body's not supposed to be processing an energy load, especially refined carbohydrates in the middle of the night while you're sleeping. It's just going to sit there and accumulate.
0: So those are some pretty disordered ones. they have got one more here we can show. So now you all can see who are watching this on YouTube, what it's not supposed to look like. Look at the fasting blood sugar level. Look at these multiple spikes. It never goes below 100 here. Look at this multiple spike in the evening. We can see what, do you know what this person was eating here? Plant Plantain, plantain chips. chips. Okay. So this is a person that really has some evidence for insulin resistance, right? Yeah.
1: And you're saying, you know, you ate 70 grams of total carbohydrates. She might be eating 15 and spiking to 200 and have a mass very under the curve. So you can identify very quickly that I'm not having a normal response. And then those people, we need to remove carbs. Ketogenic diet is probably going to be the best thing. And you also need to be fasting. You need to be removing yourself from food at some times. Like, like you said, like you could handle pretty high carbohydrate load and have a very normal response. That is because you're insulin sensitive, but it's also we want to titrate our carbohydrate intake to our rate of glycogen clearance. So the more active you are, the more physically active you are, especially strength training, and the more you're fasting, the shorter your eating window, you're going to have a higher tolerance for carbohydrates. So that's important to keep in mind. Some people are limited physically or just don't want to work out. You're not going to have as high of a carbohydrate tolerance. You're not going to be able to have as many if you're never moving your body. I hope that everybody moves their body. It, you know, you can't exercise a bad diet, but you also can't neglect exercise as an important component of longevity. It's extremely important.
0: Absolutely. And just to contrast, this is my blood sugar, you guys. <laughs> this is the difference. Like, this is what we have here. Look at the baseline. Look at how big the spikes are. Look at the morphology of the spike versus those other ones that are disordered. And I, I love what you said there that, and I agree with you completely, and I think that a, a carnivore diet without carbs is, could be very helpful for these people in the situation of disordered insulin metabolism, in the situation of metabolic dysfunction, removing carbohydrates, incredibly powerful, incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. For those of us that are metabolically healthy, metabolically sensitive, we don't need to fear carbohydrates in certain situations. And that's kind of the message of this podcast. And that, hey, there's a lot of nuance here that you will miss just by looking at some of these other, um, some of these other things uh, like A1C and other issues, if you're not actually looking at the, um, the glycemic variability. So, let me dig into some stuff here that I think people will find pretty interesting with regard to honey. So, honey, I, you know, it's just it's more of the same kind of fear based mentality I fear, but people say, why in the world are you doing honey? Isn't that going to trigger candida? It's so much sugar. I've shown you guys my blood sugar responses to it, I've shown you guys my blood sugar response to it. In, in moderate to large amounts with a raw organic honey. Now it's important to know that the majority of honey in the world, or at least in the U.S., is adulterated with, with syrups. And uh, the stuff I'm getting is raw and organic. So it's not going to have, it's going to be pure honey. But there's a lot of really interesting research with honey that I'll share a little bit of. Um, you know, they've used Ethiopian multiflora honey on fluconazole-resistant candida species isolated from the oral cavity of AIDS patients. So this is my answer to anyone who says, isn't honey going to feed the candida in your gut? No, it's not. If it's good honey, it's been used as an, anti, um, as an antifungal against candida, which is so interesting. And then people will also be worried about um, honey with regard to dental health. And there's uh, a large amount of data with honey suggesting that it's actually helpful for, data, for dental health. Uh, effective honey in preventing gingivitis and dental caries in patients undergoing orthodontic treatment, and I don't know why we should be so surprised at this because honey is really a whole food. It occurs in a honeycomb. It occurs in nature, and it's not you know it, it's not uh, it's not the same as high fructose corn syrup. This is where I think so many are misled into thinking that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. If it fits your macros, it's fine. Effectiveness of three mouthwashes, Manuka honey, raw honey, and chlorhexidine on plaque and gingival scores of 12 to 15-year-old school children, a randomized controlled trial. So if you guys want to see what happened, the honey-based mouthwash showed a promising antimicrobial effect on dental caries and plaque and gingival scores. What? Like most people would not ever believe that that could be the case. So again, I'll put all of these studies into the show notes for you guys um, with regard to honey, but there's a lot more where this has come from with regard to honey and both antimicrobial, antifungal effects, and um, as even as a, a, a mouth protectant as a whole food. Last one, uh, Journal of Medicinal Food from 2013. Honey and cardiovascular risk factors in normal individuals And patients with diabetes, mellitus, or dyslipidemia, basically they're saying that um, more studies are exploring other aspects of honey activity, such as its effect on blood sugar, body weight, lipid profile, CRP, nitric oxide, um, pro-inflammatory prostaglandins, homocysteine, growing evidence and scientific data support the use of honey in patients with diabetes, hypertension, (laughs) dyslipidemia, obesity, and cardiovascular disease. Uh, If that's not a striking headline, I don't know what is. Uh, Again, this is not fake honey. This is not the honey that you get in the little plastic thing in the grocery store with the bear and you just put it on your bagel. This is organic raw honey. Um, There's some nuance here that I'll have to dig into on future podcasts having to do with the differences between a whole food and high fructose corn syrup added to honeys. The last set of things I want to talk about is my my undying disdain for fiber, which was confirmed in this study. And I'll certainly let let you weigh in on this if you have different opinions, but um, uh, this is all stuff that I've talked about in my book and you can all read about it there. But my experience with fiber in this uh, CGM experiment was not good. I don't like the way it feels. And as I talk about in the book, Dietary fiber has been correlated with many negative things. It's been correlated with reproductive abnormalities. This is the biocycle study. I cite this one in my book showing that dietary fiber consumption was inversely associated with hormone concentrations, positively associated with the risk of anovulation in females. This is 250 women aged 18 to 44, meaning that the more fiber these females ate, the higher their risk of anovulation because there was a disruption in the normal hormonal cycling of um, these patients when they're eating more fiber, that fiber can go into the gut and bind hormones that are supposed to be uh, recycled in order for women to have normal menstrual cycles. Another abstract, the effect of dietary fat and fiber on serum estrogen concentrations in premenopausal women. They find that dietary fiber, um, when independent effects were examined, high fiber alone caused a decrease in estradiol and sex hormone binding globulin. This is exactly what's going on in the situation with the biocycle study. Women need estrogen to have normal ovulatory cycles. In that abstract, the investigators found that the women were more likely to have abnormal menstrual cycle frequency and abnormal uh, menstruation in general when they were eating more fiber but the hits don't stop there. As you all know, there is good evidence that I've talked about in my book that um, fiber also can, the um, study here, fiber also can deplete minerals. So dietary fiber intake increases the risk of zinc deficiency in healthy and diabetic women. Oh, why do we think fiber is good for us again? Um, certainly I think evolutionarily we would have eaten fiber from time to time, but this is one of the hypotheses that I advance with all of my work that perhaps plant foods are really just survival food and especially high fiber plant foods. I think these are really survival food and that if we want to be healthy, fiber is not the way forward with this fiber. As I've said in many podcasts in the future. I did one with Chris uh, Kresser as well, in which I had a friendly debate with him on this topic. Fiber has really not been shown to increase microbial diversity in the gut. Removing fiber doesn't decrease microbial diversity. The famous constipation study, which people have heard about ad nauseum if they've listened to my Mm -hmm. stuff, stopping or reducing dietary fiber intake reduces constipation and its associated symptoms. You guys can all read this one from the World Journal of Gastroenterology. The take home is that in the group in which fiber was completely stopped, 100% of people resolved idiopathic constipation and that did not happen in any of the groups that kept fiber in their diet. So, you know, there's, there is a, there's a really great title and cover of a book, um, that I think sums this up very well that I will, that I will show you all now. It is called Fiber Menace. Um, by Konstantin Monasteriski. He's got kind of a a tough name, but I will show you guys this page. Um, You can check this book out or you can check The Carnivore Code out. But as you'll see here, Fiber Menace, the truth about fiber's role in diet failure, constipation, hemorrhoids, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, colon cancer. It's a bowl of nails. (laughs) It's essentially, in my opinion, What most fiber is for humans. I think that if we really want to get nutrients, we we don't want to have fiber in our diet. Now, I'm not speaking for for Kara. I'll be curious about your opinion. I don't mean to put you on the spot. You're welcome to just um, plead the fifth on this if you want, or um, we can move on. But I, I am really strongly of the opinion that fiber is not beneficial for humans. There's a whole chapter in my book, The Carnivore Code, on this. I felt this very clearly in a subjective manner when I was doing this experiment. I didn't like the way strawberries made my stomach feel. I didn't like the way. Uh, squash made my stomach feel. And I, I like the way I feel with honey. As I showed, there are many studies that show that raw organic honey can be very beneficial for humans. It's a whole food. And I think that if we really want to get the most nutrients out of our food, we will eat the most animal foods from the best sources with the smallest amount of fiber. It's not to say that we can't eat fiber ever, but I can't even tell you how many people I've worked with now, hundreds, who have come to me with IBS or constipation or inflammatory bowel disease and see massive improvements. I mean, just this week, I've I've been talking to multiple people that I've messaged me on Instagram saying that their bloating and gas got so much better when they switched from a plant-based diet to a, an animal-based diet. It's just striking the difference people can experience with their GI symptoms when they remove fiber from their diet. Now, I'm not saying it's the most thing in the world, but I am saying that it can pull out hormones which are needed for us, both androgens and estrogens for both men and women women need testosterone too. Men need estrogen as well. It's going to affect hormones negatively in both men and women, I believe. It's going to pull out nutrients. We know this to be the case. Again, there's a whole chapter in my book about fiber. I'm not a fan. I hope you guys all know how much I love you, that I ate squash for you and fruit for you all. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I think, as I said in this podcast many times, what I have found to be the best diet for me, find what works for you right now, is a period of carnivore plus honey which I would call Carb Carnivore. Got the cookbook coming out later this year. We'll talk all about that. Any thoughts about that long rant, Kara? What do you think about all that? Am I just crazy?
1: Yeah, I lie somewhere in the middle where I don't think fiber has all of the benefits that has been so long reported. Um, I don't inherently think that it's negative for a lot of people. I have recommended a no fiber, low fiber diet for a lot of people with those GI issues. And I think it can relieve symptoms for a large percentage of those people. So I think there is a time and a place. I don't inherently think it causes those problems for other people who aren't having any GI symptoms to start with. And then, you know, do you think it's possible that you feel kind of bad on fiber because you never have fiber It's similar with just because your body's not used to it. Like, Do you think that might be why you don't feel good? Is it the fiber or is it that you never have fiber?
0: It's totally possible that um, as a carnivore for two years now, my stomach is smaller or I'm essentially on a low residue diet. You know, studying for this board exam uh, for nutrition, it's very clear that for Crohn's disease, mainstream gastroenterologists will recommend a low residue diet, which is essentially a low fiber diet. So The fact that in people who have IBS and symptoms and inflammatory bowel disease, fiber could be causing problems is very clear. And I think that now that I've been without fiber for so long, it's probable that I just don't like the way it makes me feel. But I also take that as some indication. Um, If I included fiber in my diet and I suddenly felt much better or my stomach felt better or I don't know what would improve because as people know, I've been open about the fact that I I have regular, easy to pass bowel movements, which are beautiful every day and I love it. Um, you know, fiber doesn't make that any better for me. But I think you're right. And people who don't have problems eating fiber, maybe not a big deal. If you have menstrual irregularities, if you have hormonal abnormalities, if you have nutrient deficiency, realize that the fiber is pulling things out. And I think that the case that I'm trying to make primarily is that fiber doesn't really hold up as a benefit for humans. We don't need fiber. If it's not harming you, it's probably something that we've encountered throughout our evolution. Um, I don't think it's good for humans. And right now. My body's like, hey, I have no use for that. I don't need it. If I had a season where, say, I were in the Savannah in Africa or in you know wherever Northern Europe, and I had a season where I had to eat fruit every day, I couldn't get honey. My body might adjust, but right now, it's like, hey, I don't, I don't want that. I don't need that. So I I completely acknowledge that it might be the fact that I haven't had it that makes it feel like it doesn't feel great. But I wanted to highlight the fact that it does have some negative effects potentially in everyone. Um, But again, if people aren't having problems probably not a big deal. In the carnivore code, I do talk about a tier one carnivore diet. In the cookbook, I will talk about a a tier one carnivore diet in which I include some foods with fiber, fruit, squash, less toxic plant foods. That's why I wanted to eat them during my CGM because these are the foods that I'm going to be recommending to people on the Mm -hmm. cookbook. They don't seem to do great for me. They don't look horrible, but I don't feel any better with them. But I think that they're, they're the least toxic plant foods. But if somebody is listening to this and they have GI issues, my goodness! Consider getting rid of fiber. You don't need it. Your gut flora is going to be fine. Everybody says, "Is my microbiome I'm going to be okay?" Your microbiome will be okay. Listen to the podcast I did with Chris Kresser. Listen to everything else I've done. Read my book. With regard to all that stuff, so awesome. Well, we've gone almost two hours. <laughs> my my emailers who say, "I wish you'd make your podcast shorter," are not going to be happy. But I don't think we've had a lot of fluff in this one. Anything you want to add? To this before we wrap up is there anything that we you really want to highlight that we didn't cover i think we got through a lot um
1: yeah we got through a lot of the things that i really wanted to talk about and really want to get across you know at the end of the day number one thing i tell everyone is date over dogma and i think you definitely agree with that like test for yourself see how you feel if you do something strictly for a certain amount of time and you don't feel good, or your labs aren't what you want them to be, then it might not be the best option for you. Experiment and test for yourself. So be an advocate for your own health. Uh, traditional healthcare system, probably not going to do it. So do it yourself. Take, take it into your own hands.
0: I love that data over dogma. And though I am widely accused of being a carnivore zealot, I mm-hmm. I cannot, I really don't think that I am. And I don't like to play into dogma. I like to be open-minded, which is why I wanted to do this experiment. It's why I wrote the book in the first place. It's why every author continues to learn and, and explore and find nuances. And I think that this carbohydrate experiment has been open, eye-opening for me. Again, like I said, I don't think ketogenic diets are dangerous or harmful. I think we probably should cycle in and out like most people do intuitively. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that we've seen that there are some potential problems to being long-term keto without including carbs. But heck, if it's working for you, data over dogma, do the experiments. And that's what I want to keep doing. I'm going to show you guys my gut flora analysis. I'm going to do a poop test. I'm going to show you my microbial diversity in the future. I'm going to do more labs and make sure and continue to prove that an animal-based diet, which is what I'm absolutely doing, there really are no plants in my diet with honey, is completely, in my opinion, uh, a very strong, uh, nutritionally replete and viable Uh, Diet for humans. Is it the only diet for humans? Absolutely not as you're showing as many other people are showing You can have a diet that's pretty darn healthy. It doesn't have to be all animal products I think that after all this awesome information that you've reviewed with me on this podcast Most listeners will probably want to know what's your diet like what'd you have for breakfast this morning?
1: Yeah, I am omnivore. I guess is what you could call me. I don't follow a specific diet Like I said, I do a pretty like two to three month ketosis period in the winter and cycle in and out and keep my eating window short. And I work out pretty heavily. So I do have ketones at trace levels throughout the day, even when I'm eating carbs. Um, And for breakfast, I had three scrambled eggs cooked in butter, uh, an avocado and some blueberries. So it's like relatively low carb, pretty high fat, high protein, like 20 to 30% of my calories from carbs, probably But my number one food rule always is whole foods, like as close to the natural state as possible. And I think if you do that, you're going to be much better off than vast majority of people. So like, that's my golden rule to everyone is just eat real food, eat real food, always just whole foods.
0: (laughs) I think it's the first step. I think it's the first step. And as we talked about, for some people who are markedly insulin resistant, they're going to need more. They're going to need to take out carbs. They're going to need to take out more than they're going to need to take out even real food that's grains and things like that. But I mean, I'm biased, you know, I see things through the lens of carnivore MD, but you know, your breakfast is carnivore-ish in my opinion. That's tier one carnivore. Anyone that's read my book, The Carnivore Code will know that fruit. And like you're saying, avocado is a fruit. These are foods that will be in my cookbook. These are, that's a kind of a carnivore-ish breakfast. That's great. So as we wrap up, there's one more point that I want to make. And that is that by ethnicity, we see differences. And there's very, there's a lot of individual variability just because this is the way my numbers look. It's not necessarily the way someone else's numbers look. And you and I had talked about this offline that you had had friends who ate Different people who ate the exact same food and had different glycemic responses to it. So, again, highlighting the importance of inter inter individual variation and inter ethnicity variation. What we know is that there are very high rates of insulin resistance in East and Southeast Asians and um, in those of African descent. And so, in those populations as well, you might look skinny and have Mm -hmm. a lot of visceral adipose tissue and be very insulin resistant. This is something to not ignore. And, you know, it's interesting, I, I was not aware of this, um, you know, my friends were asking me, um, is, is studying for that, that nutrition board exam valuable? And I think one of the most interesting things that I found in the studying is that uh, short upper arm length and short upper leg length in Asian populations are correlated with a higher incidence of metabolic syndrome, probably leading to just some hypersensitivity to certain carbohydrates or mm-hmm. some ability to to handle the carbohydrates less well. So, uh, I think we're probably going to put the the whole outline that you and I have been going by for this presentation online, but just one of the studies ethnic differences in the relationship between insulin sensitivity and insulin response, there are many studies to show the same data that across individuals and across ethnicities there's a big difference in the way that we respond to carbohydrates in the form of the carbohydrate matters and again a one C fasting glucose, finger stick glucose. These are probably not going to get us there in terms of precision. And we're going to miss really big metrics that can be very helpful in long-term health. So awesome. So I did, I said I was going to do this at the beginning of the podcast. I want to do this live. I've got people who are watching. You can see I've got my CGM on. I can just take my phone and put it on the uh, on the arm and get my blood sugar readings for breakfast. And I'll show you guys in real time what my uh, what my honey this morning looked like with, I believe I had steak and honey and liver. And there it is. Um, I'll show that there. So that's this morning. I just did that. Again, it looks pretty similar to the ones we've seen before. The peak of the curve with probably 60 to 70 grams of honey is 124. Um, show you guys that right there. That all happened during the podcast. And now the blood sugar is pretty much back to normal. The baseline in real time is around 70. There's a little bit of a low of 61, but there's the baseline leading up to it, 71. And the most recent blood sugar was about 77 in real time. So that's how it works, you guys. It's pretty darn cool. I can follow it in real time. It's been super interesting for me to, um, to do all that stuff. So people will know, I showed the website. If you want to get hooked up with one of these, you can go to NutriSense.io. Again, this is not a sponsored podcast. I just think these guys are doing great work and they were kind enough to provide me with a CGM. You can sign up there, let them know Carnivore MD sent ya. They can get it without our doctor's prescription and you can get two weeks of a CGM for like 150 bucks. You'll get so much information. It's insane. But I think long-term monitoring is going to be really cool as well. So, uh, all right. The last question that I always ask people on the podcast, I didn't warn you about this. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently, Kara?
1: Radical. Okay, cool. Well, I've been in quarantine. Well, right before quarantine, um, NutriSense actually was in Techstars. I don't know if you've heard of it, it is a startup accelerator program. So to me, that was super, super cool. Coming from a clinical background, they basically take you for three months, and with all the experts in the area of business and entrepreneurship, give you a crash course on building a build on building a business. And you're with 10 other startups. And so being around a bunch of like-minded people who are grinding away at building their dream was pretty awesome. So for somebody who loves to learn, three months of learning about something completely new was pretty exciting. Especially coming from a clinical background. You know, I was the only one there with a clinical background. Everyone has tech or business background. And so the whole new world for me is pretty exciting.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And hopefully, now that quarantine is ending, you can do Something some other radical think, soon. Yeah. You can do some other more radical things. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Again, it's nutrisense.io if people want to check this out. I think it's such a valuable metric. It's been clearly very insightful for me. And I appreciate all of your time and uh, all the help that you've given me. I occasionally would text you and be like, what the heck happened? I had some readings mm-hmm. overnight that were kind of going low, and we troubleshot that. It was probably just me rolling over on the device. But thanks for all your help with this. And I'm super excited. If you guys get one of these of any type, whether it's from Nutrisense or whoever you get it from, send them to me. Let's compile data. Let's look at these. I think this is a really great metric. Like Kara said, having real-time feedback is how we change behavior. So I'm going to try and get one of these from my dad. Uh, who knows if he's listening to this podcast or not? I'm <laughs> I'm trying to change his behavior. He's doing a lot better. My dad is a 70 year old this year uh, physician who is one of my greatest inspirations. If anyone has read my book, they know that and. Um, I think he's had a little bit of trouble changing his diet. And so I want to get him a CGM and see if that'll help him change his diet or give him some real-time feedback. So I'll keep you guys posted on whether the original Dr. Saladino does a CGM, but awesome. thanks again for coming on. That. Yeah. And I look forward to this and I'll keep you guys posted if the bearded nurse does one. We'll see.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Paul.
0: All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening to that podcast. Please check out my book, thecarnivorecodebook.com. You can now pre-order the second edition online. It will be available everywhere very soon. Like I said, this podcast comes out on June the 2nd. And by June the 3rd or the 4th, it should be everywhere. Barnes & Noble, all these places should be available for pre-order very soon. Certainly Amazon this week. If you want to get on the list for the second edition of my book, thank you for the support. So excited for this guy to launch on August the 4th, 2020, and for the message to spread because I really know that we are helping a lot of people. Every day I get messages from people saying that their psoriasis, their rosacea, their fibromyalgia was improved, their mood is improved, fertility's returned, weight loss has happened. I, I believe with every fiber of my being that an animal-based diet is the best diet for humans. And that by counteracting the incorrect narrative that is sweeping the globe right now around plant-based diets, we will save lives, improve lives, improve the life of my niece and nephew, your children, uh, my family, uh, all of these people. And that is why I do what I do. So thank you all for the support. Please support my sponsors, Blue Blocks, B L U B L O X, White Oak Pastures, Ancestral Supplements, Ancestral supplements, the code is Saladino MD for white oak and blue blocks. It is Carnivore MD. You can use the code CarnivoreMD at NutriSense.io to get some uh, cheddar, some clams, some money off of the uh, CGM, which I believe you will benefit from massively. I want to get one from my dad. I hope he'll wear it. We'll see. And we will uh, advance the health of the population in that way. So what is happening with me? I am in Austin, Texas. I could not be happier to be here. The first night that I was here, I went to the river and swung off a rope swing with my friends. Got some really exciting projects happening here that I can't wait to tell you guys about in the next few weeks. Uh, I've got a beautiful yard. I'm so grateful to be where I am. I can shoot the bow in the backyard. I'm gonna put the slack slack line up in the backyard. Looking out my window, all I see is green. (laughs) So I'm very lucky, and I hope that you are all getting outside whenever you're listening to this and enjoying the summer that is upon us. Uh, I think the coronavirus is now fading away, as we will see. I'm really going to be switching away from talking about it. I think it's time to stop talking about coronavirus and start talking about nutrition again and all the things that we all originally connected on. Um, Thank you all for your support. And I cannot wait to hear more from you soon. Stay tuned for details about white oak pastures and what is going on with me. You know my handles. CarnivoreMD is my website. CarnivoreMD is my Instagram, Twitter, You can find me on Facebook there too. I've got a YouTube channel. Again, the video for this will be there if you want to see the stuff and follow me on Instagram if you want to see the snippets or look at the YouTube channel. Love you all. Stay radical.